Some parties are fun. Some parties are flops. We all have a story about a party. Americans love to party. There are songs about it, movies about it, and every excuse we can use to party. America parties and parties hard. Hop aboard for an informative and enlightening romp through history as we learn about some of the parties that have left America with some of her worst hangovers. It's a buffet for your brain, folks. Grab a plate, pile it high, and undo your pants just for the fun of it. We're about to double down on a cacophony of cerebral calories. Stick with me, and if you have any questions, please raise your hand. Welcome to the podcast. In many countries, multiple political parties define the diverse demographics, even if racially similar. Diversity between beliefs can span a chasm. If you look at it as conservative and liberal here in America, then what defines us and divides us into these categories? These would be your ideologies. Your political affiliation in this country would be Republican or Democrat, or independent, which could be any number of parties. Green, Libertarian, Scientology, and what up until recent decades, as we've covered before in the progress of board games, was the Progressive Party. By examining the history and struggles and repeating history of America's two-party system, specifically the Democrats, we'll see how America's own government and political system just can't get it together for the people. We'll look at how these terms and labels have been twisted and contorted and, well, why do we insist on identifying as these things? It should come as no surprise following 2016 that the Democratic Party is split down the middle. But this has been the case for most of the party's existence. Sometimes I like to point out that many civilized nations offer a multi-party system, like I said before. You'll begin to see why that is. For liberals in America, they've been shrouded in this bubble of liberalism for some very liberal policies, both social and economic. They're liberal on foreign policy and just liberal liberals. Liberal. What does it even mean? It's come to be a bad word, almost as bad as conservative, by the way. Another word Democrats, specifically conservative Democrats, who now go by the more marketable moderates, seek to distance from. But the party has been fraught with infighting and splintering from the onset. Day one was a division, and sort of a chain reaction from there. The Democrats, through history, have a track record of blowing it when it matters. And even more consistent, a track record of not learning from their mistakes. Ever just like today. And before we get too deep into the struggles faced by the Democratic Party, you have to understand a little bit about what they're up against in the modern era. And then we'll look at how it all kind of unraveled for them from the get-go. For the Democrats, post-Watergate was supposed to be the liberal reckoning. How does a party not become the predominant ideology when the other side is that? We'll see, because it matters. If the Democrats aren't careful, it's a question they'll be asking after this election, too. And labels that define us are more convoluted than the average American with a history degree could understand. So how are we expected to know if we are liberal or conservative? And what's progressive? What is extremism? In America, who are we? Slowly, over the last three decades, as the right emerged from the post-Nixon cocoon into the Reagan butterfly... Uh, no, 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 no. That's... That's a metaphor that just doesn't work. Uh, but nothing really emerges out of... Uh... <laughs> Hang on. 
The ride emerged from the post-Nixon waste mound, a psilocybic mushroom of greed, arrogance, and ego. A psychedelic red, white, and blue kaleidoscope explosion of yo-jo patriotism. A caricature of America's 1950s Cold War John Wayne war film persona. The path from the disgrace of Nixon to the rage of Reagan was tedious for most. And fascinatingly, happened in less than a decade. Following Nixon's resignation in shame, having tarnished our democratic process, America was awarded only her fourth non-elected president of the United States, Nixon VP Gerald Ford. The entire story behind Nixon and how Ford even got on the ticket is also a fun story, but just know America's most corrupt political party's most corrupt leader just resigned. Barely into his second term, Ford steps in to assume those last three years and was ill-equipped for the job. Ford was so forgettable, most remember him as Chevy Chase, or that a lot of Hollywood stars knew his wife really well. Ford couldn't secure an actual elected term and lost the 76 election to the Democrats. Republicans were in no way stalled, though. Instead, Ronald Reagan prepared carefully for the next go-around. Mocked relentlessly for his missteps, the charming southern gentleman, the drawled-out peanut farmer Jimmy Carter, emerged as the left's answer to all the woes in 76. There's a lot to debate about Carter's legacy as president, but it's important to understand that, like Obama in 2009, Jimmy Carter inherited a big chunk of the baggage that would weigh down his presidency. But through some of his own questionable moves, his open disdain for liberalism, and the Republican Party rallying behind their up-and-coming savior— Carter's presidency was short-lived. Through the gas crisis and the hostage crisis and escalations in the Middle East, Carter had his hands full. There's a great side story, though, to Reagan capitalizing on the hostage situation, manipulating and controlling the narrative to ensure he would win the presidency and look like a hero. A tactic he used to secure the nomination to begin with. But again, another episode. Democrats divided on a path forward with the much maligned conservative... Sorry moderate Democrat President Carter, and the more liberal and progressive wings of the party. A split within the party now, when the Republicans were dealing knockout blows on the campaign trail, would prove to be more than the Democrats could handle. Carter lost a lot of support within his own party, including leftist Ted Kennedy, who challenged Carter's re-election bid in 1980, further splitting the liberals down the middle, weakening the Democratic hold on the Oval Office. Think about it. A sitting president was challenged within his own party. It's happened before, quite a bit, in fact, but now, when they should have been uniting the country under a message of, I mean, hell, not Nixon, they just ate themselves. Embarrassing. Ultimately, Reagan, the hardline conservative, which doesn't really do him justice, chose his strongest primary opponent as his running mate, the more moderate and reasonable George Herbert Walker Bush. Bush came from one of those families from old money, secret societies, and a sort of royal entitlement to positions of power. No-nonsense Reagan, the bullshit artist that he was, couldn't stand him. But that attractive political combination would turn out to be more than the limping and wounded Democrats could handle. The contentious Democratic convention had left the party bruised. Literally, there were fights. They were left fractured, divided, and defeated by a mandate. It was an ugly moment in a party that had seen its fair share of embarrassing defeats and blunders. This is about the trend of struggle and fumbles and failures of the Democratic Party. They've faced it since they began. And hopefully, it's an explanation of why we say these parties have morphed into one another over time. A few side stories along the way should help put it all into perspective. Trust me, by the end of this, 
you're going to see how it all comes together to sow confusion and division among the American people. All the stuff we're arguing about today, in the wise words of the great Spaniard and darling of Florin, Inigo Montoya, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Unlike the Republicans four years prior, when Carter beat Ford, the Democrats did not bounce back. At all. There was no Reagan in their back pocket waiting to ascend. Kennedy's reputation, scandals, and the childish manner he exhibited in defeat at the convention was on display for the world. An act of brash selfishness over the good of the party, Kennedy's chance of the White House had passed. A still lengthy career ahead, many lay the blame for the party's decimation in 1980, right there at Kennedy's feet. Again, post-Watergate for the Democrats should have been a cakewalk. There should have been no question, but still, failure. America would emerge from the 70s with movie star and former ape sidekick Ronald Reagan manipulating the media much in a similar way we've seen in recent years. The Carter presidency was problematic at best, but Carter was a good man at heart, something the Oval Office hadn't seen much of and wouldn't see much of for a very, very, very long time. However, a liberal Carter was not, and with the running American theme of the nice guy finishing last, Carter's time would end with the 1980 bombast and charismatic cult of personality around Ronald Reagan. Reagan was not only intoxicating to some, but the bravado was infectious. The American flag, the eagle, Ronald Reagan. It was the Cold War, and America was playing the lead, whether anyone liked it or not. President of the United States was a role Reagan trained his whole life to play, and he sure knew his lines. Reagan was, was more than a politician. Reagan was a celebrity. We hadn't seen this sort of fervor since Kennedy, really. Reagan's administration, too, was problematic, to say the least, for a multitude of reasons no one seems really ready to discuss. But I will, because it's me. Exactly when the Alzheimer's really took hold in old Bonzo, we'll never know. I mean, his presidency will forever be shrouded in mystery, with just which decisions he made during those years when his brain may or may not have been affected by it. Imagine, knowing the president of the United States of America had a degenerative brain disorder and covering it up. Go back. Watch the Iran-Contra hearings. Tell me you didn't know then. I'm not making fun. Quite the contrary. Listen, it's one of my greatest fears. I've seen what it does firsthand. But facts are facts. Gorbachev came to the table with world peace. We stood at the precipice of actual world peace, or pretty damn close to it, and Reagan wouldn't go for it. All ego. Fun fact, that was one of probably three instances where America stood at the helm of leading a world peace movement, a turning point in the world's history. And each time, a Republican stood in the way. Facts. America is a nation who let that happen and holds that guy up as a hero, not just let Iran Contra happen, not just the world peace thing. I mean, America let a guy be in office making decisions while he was literally losing his mind. At very least, it warrants an honest discussion into his presidency and the validity of his. I mean, are we not going to really step back? Just going to let that elephant sit in the corner there for the next 30 years, huh? You know. <sighs> Republicans and many Democrats got swept up in the cult of personality of Ronnie in the 1980s, and key moments of what would become pop culture history overshadowed the corruption, racism, and the many, 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 many scandals of the administration and prison sentences for Reagan staffers. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? 
The Democratic Party in the 1970s and 80s was still somewhat suffering. I mean, they were still trying to recover. This is a running trend we'll get to, so take notes. The left maintained enough momentum to stay relevant, especially in Congress, where they made the biggest impact on legislation. The nomination of a woman, Geraldine Ferraro, to VP Mondale's 84 nomination, for example, was a landmark, something the right wouldn't do for another two decades. I mean, the left still hasn't done it since, but bygones. At least once, right? The left was swinging hard, but oftentimes missing. And as you'll see throughout history, when the Democrats missed, oh, they missed big. How do you come out of the other side of Watergate and still not become the predominant ideology for most Americans to unite under? It isn't that I agree with it. It just doesn't make sense. It's a question that haunts the party to this day. Chalk it up to global circumstances, a weakened and divided party leadership, a flimsy message, a platform that, eh, questionable compromises, and some very poor choices, strategically speaking. To not have come out of the 76 election with a home run was disappointing for many, to say the least. And Democrats felt soured, especially those leaning with Ted Kennedy, the more liberal and arguably more progressive candidate, over the conservative, sorry, moderate, Jimmy Carter. It could be fair to say that the 76 election went to a conservative Democrat and it cost him the next election. Democrats, crushed under the strain of the Carter administration's failures. They wouldn't see a real chance for the White House for another dozen years thanks to that. With the 80s ending and the Reaganomics administration continued with Ron's VP having beaten another weak Democratic candidate, Eyebrows McTankdriver III, seriously, no one remembers, okay? But because you're going to try looking it up while you're driving, Mike Dukakis, cousin of Steel Magnolia, Olympia. Coming off the machismo and charisma of Reagan, America was struggling to cope with a new, less impressive figurehead. Americans, after four years, were just not feeling the love for Reagan's former vice president, the sophisticated Ivy League and effeminate George Bush, whom the media also deemed wimpy, which is an odd slur directed toward a man who had logged nearly 60 missions flying on a plane in World War II, which is, I guarantee you, more than anybody's flown who called him a wimp. Those were good years for SNL, though. It's a strange turn, the media did, since in the 1980 primaries, the then youthful-looking Bush was displaying his athleticism against Reagan's advanced age. The media picks its darlings, but Bush wasn't one this time around. Things looked up for the Democrats as the 90s rolled around. Reaganomics, by this point, was proving strenuous on average Americans. And with the explosion of mass media, information was more readily available than ever. A significant turning point is right around the corner. During the 1970s, with crisis after crisis following the aftermath of the Vietnam War, combined with the struggles of Carter's term, the left began its late 20th century descent into the game of forsaking their platform and the people for the sake of political checkmates. While branding themselves as the party of the people, the Democrats struggled to match the catchphrase with the platform. It's easy to blame Kennedy for splitting the party, refusing to drop out of the race, challenging the convention, and not supporting Carter after— hell, he not only didn't support Carter, Kennedy conspired against him with the other party. It's the stuff of Hollywood, but another podcast. However, you understand that his campaign, Kennedy's, was only bred partly out of Kennedy's ambitions. The division in the party was clear. Liberals, like now, were frustrated with centrists and the lean of the party toward the middle. Carter's campaign highlighted that frustration. While still liberal compared to conservatives, the Democratic Party struggled for a voice in America. Stifled under the slow-moving shadow of a movie star president, a frustration was brewing out of Americans who were tired of the status quo, wars for profit, and a rapidly evolving economy 
that promised to make them rich but seemed to guarantee their bosses got rich. Healthcare, gun rights, abortion, the role of government, it was all on the debate stage, and we're still arguing over the same things today. The Democrats were stagnating, and Americans were tired of Republican policy. We saw this in the 92 Democratic primary when Bill Clinton pulled ahead of a rather mediocre field. All glitz and very little liberal glamour, the governor of Arkansas charmed his way to the top of the ticket, coming out of nowhere, climbing his way over more traditional leftists and some attractive moderates. The media loved him. He was the party's hope to be the new Kennedy. But before we get to the Clintonian era of the Democratic Party, which extends into even now, let's take a quick step back and see how in the hell did we even get here? I mean, seriously, how do we get to the point where we are today with either of these parties? America needed a party everybody could come to. And that's a fork in the road the American people have been at before. Bill Clinton stood atop the podium, being sworn in, and America's hopes for some social change were high. The Democrats had power. A new day was dawning. And for the Democrats, this day was long overdue. Go back three decades or so. The assassination of JFK had been an attack on the party, as we would see play out in the latter part of the 20th century. Now, you can go down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole on a cubic crap ton of other podcasts. But for this, let's just talk about the impact of the assassination on the party itself. In fact, per our previous installment, dating back to FDR, when the party was leaning too far progressive, the powers that be from both sides conspired to rein it back into center with the racist Truman. We're bouncing backward a little, but it's all relevant. Whomever you believe carried out the attack, Kennedy's assassination halted the nation, but it also crippled the party. Lyndon Johnson stepped in, and while they didn't know it at the time, the Democrats' political relevance died with Jack. As harsh as that may sound, if you peek into the rabbit hole just enough to see what would have happened had Kennedy not been killed, I'm not copying the conspiracy, but it is clear that whenever the Democrats can get a leg up, it gets swept out from under them like Danielson. And I'll say this, uh, the Republicans aren't much better. That's another podcast. The Democrats had been throwing off their back foot since they started, really. Let's just take a gander at some of what led the left going in circles in the first place, even before Watergate, before the Kennedy assassination. If you've studied history on a middle school level, you might understand the basics. If not, here's a quick refresher. The Constitution wasn't unanimous among Americans. Many anti-federalists, as they would be called, preferred a government more akin to the original Articles of Confederation. To make it easier, the difference between the two without getting bogged down is that the Constitution enabled a larger and, as they saw it, overly intrusive federal government, whereas the Articles placed more governing power in the individual states with minimal involvement over the federal level. I'll break that down for you more in a bit, but this is where the term states' rights comes up, and you've probably heard that as a defense against the claim that the American Civil War was about slavery. Both things can be true, and are. So the anti-federalist movement had been stirring. Still, don't be fooled that there were just two schools of thought. Remember that back in the late 18th century, if you looked around the world, what we were trying to do hadn't really been done. A government the way the Constitution presented the Declaration of Independence and even the Articles of Confederation, this was uncharted territory for many involved. And these were primitive times, a hundred years before Little House on the Prairie. You, you can't comprehend it. Everything by candlelight, man. Every day was glorified camping. I hate camping. So we went from no taxation without representation to we're still getting taxed, but just differently and sometimes more, and we just have new people we never see in charge of it all. So, okay, what's changed? I mean, think about it. Without the internet, without TV, without your phone, if you only just had a newspaper which was way more than they had back then, 
And I mean, they had newspapers, but they didn't have newspapers every day like we have. How informed do you think you would be? What would regulate and inform your opinions? How would you know what you were, politically speaking? The flow of information was limited and somewhat controlled. Most of these guys didn't even know what a president should do. There just weren't that many examples around. It's the 1700s, man, lots of castles and barons and kings and royal incesty red wedding shit. A lot of different leaders and a lot of different titles, but a president was sort of... <laughs> unprecedented. <laughs> oh, I love me some me. The separation of powers, checks and balances, these were all things seen in other governments here and there, and we borrowed a virtual smorgasbord of ideas to build our own. After all, once you leave your mommy and daddy's house, maybe you don't want to put the toilet paper on the little dispenser in your place. America was the same. Borrow what worked about back home. Fill in the blanks with the rest. A constitutional mad libs of the birth of a nation. So the idea that back then, the political parties, the way we have them now, it, it just couldn't have occurred to anyone. What America's political machine has turned into, it would simply horrify and offend, I think, even the most corrupt, maybe even the most conservative of the founding fathers. And I'll defend that with offering this. Who could pass a purity test, especially in light of social evolution? And purity tests be damned, I don't believe there is a single founding father who wouldn't be aghast at our for sale to the highest bidder government. Now, I'm making a point not to speak for dead people and people I don't know. I try to speak my own opinion without assuming anyone else's. And any assumption I do place, I work very hard to make sure it's evidence-based. But my study of the Founding Fathers, since I was a child, the crafters of our nation, academically, independently, as I've studied them, and that while there was a disagreement in how the power should be distributed, I just, I don't believe any of them, no matter the lean, would have fought as hard as they did to start something that, that would devolve into this. Yeah, uh, what's a purity test? Um... Without digging too deep into some antiquated patriarchy, a purity test is sort of a baseline of expectations. So for a prominent young man to take a wife, she would have to pass a purity test. You know, was she good enough? Pure enough? By the standards set by, you know, whomever. Yeah, it's so gross and misogynistic. But the phrase sticks, and we use it today for a wide array of topics. In this case, politics. And for, let's say, an anti-federalist, which spawned the Democratic Party, the purity test might be that you do not support a constitutional republic, as was trying to be set forth with the constitution of our little republic. So if you're trying to say that you're an anti-federalist, but you really dig that constitution, man, give me more federal government, woohoo! you're not going to pass the purity test of your fellow party mates. We all use purity tests all the time. For some, their choice in news source has to pass some sort of purity test before they will consider it news. For some, their makeup has to be ethically manufactured and tested. For others, the restaurant chain's donations matter and whether they dine there. And where we shop, what we buy, whom we date, who we let our children hang around with, they're all, in some fashion, a purity test. So, no, historically applying a purity test to men who own slaves and lived scandalously in different times is problematic in and of itself. So I'm not convinced what period of length of time signifies an adequate separation from the toxic events. I just know that we each have our own individual purity tests, and then we sort of have these social purity tests. And we have to be careful when applying modern purity tests to primitive people, places, or things. However, when I hear an argument about how the founding fathers were racists and owned slaves, it's concerning making blanket statements to defend an opinion. What we do know is that through the study of the writings of these men, 
There was conflict among many of them on the humanity of owning slaves and the acknowledgement that it was something America couldn't and shouldn't continue. I know, I'm talking about the parties. I use slavery as an example because this was probably, aside from the Constitution itself, one of the most divisive issues our young nation faced. And without superimposing much of our modern ideologies onto our predecessors, let's look at where we've been, where we're at, and where we're going. We've covered a lot of the 20th century and some of the early struggles in the 18th century, 1900s and 1700s for those playing the home version of our game today. And to really understand where we're at today, we have to take a good look at the 19th century, the 1800s. We're flashing ahead a little bit. The 24 states at the time and their peoples were still pretty divided on even the issue of the founding of our nation. Disagreements about what individual states had the right to allow and enforce had always been at the root of American politics. A division was bred from the adoption of the Constitution that lasts to this day. It's resonated throughout history. And, and let me put it in a more relatable manner. Let's say that you and your siblings live at home with your toxic parents who control you, make you work all the time, and pay most of what you earn to them. They make you believe in their religion and make you live by their strict rules and culture. It's best not to speak out against it either. Trust me. You and your brothers and your sisters, you're all tired of it. You're old enough and strong enough to stand on your own. So you leave. Except that when you leave, your parents still enforce all those rules and make you pay even more because you're somewhere that has more resources now. So it all comes to a head and you tell your parents to bugger off and you fight the fight and prove your point that you can be on your own. You're independent from mom and dad. That's right, America. You're on your own insurance policy now, big guy. Now, you and your brothers and sisters are in your new place with almost unlimited resources, unimaginable potential, and with all your kids and some friends. And you've got this really cool thing going. But it's hard to keep it going because more kids are leaving their parents and coming to do what you're doing, which looks pretty amazing, by the way. So chaos and confusion begin to stir until some of the siblings step up and say, Hey, uh, so uh, we don't have parents, and there were a lot of things the parents took care of that made our lives easier. And so all of the siblings, like, agreed and started cheering. Yeah, we're right, <laughs> until one of them said, right, right. So we all have to pick up our own slack and take personal responsibility for ourselves. Some of the other siblings gave each other the, the, the look, you know, um, because, well, maybe they had spent some years picking up that sibling slack and said, yeah, we were kind of thinking because not everybody's going to do their part all the time that maybe someone should be the parents because, you know, having parents worked, just having those parents didn't work. And maybe we could just, you know, pick amongst ourselves which parents we want every, what do you think, few years or so? And then they fought a lot. And thus the anti-federalist movement came to pass. While some of our founding fathers had crafted this beautiful document and a list of guaranteed rights, others felt like the original Articles of Confederation were sufficient, and anything more was an overstep of federalism, which was something many early Americans were very leery of. After all, mom and dad were cold-hearted bastards. I'll be damned if I just let some other mom and dad come in. Perspective. The Revolutionary War, the war for our independence, was fresh in America's memories, and the bloodshed was on the home front. It was hard to find someone not affected by the war. These were legitimate fears a nation in her infancy would and should have. And among many, there were many fears of abandonment and separation anxiety. While mommy and daddy were bastards, some things were easier with them. 
What resulted was a nation torn, political parties fractured, and a people struggling to define themselves politically. Parties and groups emerged but were extreme fringe offshoots of another group, and many struggled to garner enough support to really grab a foothold in the capital. At the turn of the century, and up to the War of 1812, we're still trying to figure all this out. However, as the nation began to grow, the necessity and dependence of slavery was weighing heavily on our nation compared to the moral cost. The years following the War of 1812 saw major economic struggles and our own growing population struggling to form her identity. America hadn't really had parties up till then. I mean, if, if you weren't on board with the Federalist movement, the ones pushing the Constitution, well, they, you know, we, we beat you, right? I mean, it's, it's never that easy. But while the people still had their individual opinions, politically, I mean, it was the Federalists, the Founding Fathers. After all, James Madison, the author of the Bill of Rights, preceded Monroe and was president during the War of 1812. That puts us roughly now around 1818 with the 24 states. But as America grew and our values evolved, the Federalist Party, the one of John Adams' generation, crumbled and gave way to another lone party, a sort of moderate catch-all, the Democratic-Republican Party, hyphenated, was pretty much all that was left standing. Democratic-Republican Party, hyphenated. And to the republic for which it stands, we fight for democracy. Because America, thanks to the Constitution and how our balance of power is laid out, is a constitutional democratic republic. Well, per our last episode, we know that thanks in large part to FDR, America is a constitutional democratic socialist republic. That's a mouthful. And if it's kind of making your head spin with these terms you're not used to hearing associated with us, strap in, big boy, because it's going to be a ride. America at that time had seen more than her fair share of wars and battles, and a weary and exhausted young nation in her earliest years of development was left traumatized. Like a child in an abusive household, those PTSD scars, they would resurface throughout our history. The fight for independence was long and costly. It seemed they worked so hard just to be so divided. Trying to recover from the economic tolls of the War of 1812 and the economy that was struggling already outside of that, as well as continued expansion, Madison's term ended in 1917. And so went the generation that founded this nation. But what do children do? They aspire to be bigger and better than the parents, right? In 1823, Madison's successor, James Monroe, had issued his doctrine, which guaranteed the U.S. would stand up to any European interference in the Latin countries on our continent seeking independence. While it sounded protective, it would also justify our interference, which would set our role on the world stage as the defenders of democracy. Known for negotiating the state of Florida and the borders of the Oregon Territory, which by itself was a major accomplishment, John Quincy Adams would win the presidency the year after the Monroe Doctrine passed. He was anti-slavery and, like his daddy, founding father John Adams, he could be a bit of a prick. More than 100 years before How to Win Friends and Influence People was written, old JQA could have benefited from a book report. His entire presidency was met with scorn and division and the question of legitimacy. You think hanging chads, still losing despite a popular vote landslide, and even the 44 and 76 Democratic conventions were rough on America's claim to democracy? Oh, you ain't seen nothing till we get to 1824. Remember how I said we had one party at this time? Well, that's true. America's political landscape was representative geographically more than ideologically. To relate it to today, imagine if our political parties really were geographic. We'll see it in red state and blue state battles, sure, but what if it really was the Pacific, the Mountain, the Midwest, the Northeast, and the Southeast? 1824 was a tricky year for sure, but if you think about where America was heading with one major party, 
and the geographic divisions within it, it wasn't headed for a United States. And it's hard to argue that America continuing down that path, well, we may speak different languages depending on what part of the country we lived in. Even though, I mean, sometimes it kind of seems like we do. Rather than two parties, two candidates whittled down through today's lengthy primary process, 1824 saw the Democratic-Republican Party, hyphenated, offering five candidates. Two from the southern states, William Crawford and John C. Calhoun, and two from the western states, Henry Clay, remember that name, and Andrew Jackson. Yes, Tennessee was west back then. And John Quincy Adams from the north. Boy, it gets choppy, but baby, stick with me because, man, history does repeat. One party with five different candidates? It wasn't taking America long to get it. That isn't one party. There's no unity to it. There are, at best, three different ideologies at play, and in pure dramatic fashion, prime for a miniseries. Guess who's at the center of it all? The Electoral f***ing College. Remember 2016 when one candidate won the popular vote by a significant margin but still lost the office due to the Electoral College? Well, here we are. Every great story has a prequel, and this one, surprisingly, also has a Jar Jar Binks. In 1824, the election was unique in that by then, 75% of the states in the Union had decided that they would select electors to the Electoral College by popular vote. Some were still choosing by state legislatures. What does that mean? The states where they chose by state legislature often didn't log the popular vote. So there really was no claim to the popular vote as it was. Still, as it could be counted, the 1824 election was the first where the president did not win the popular vote. It was also the first where the president didn't win the Electoral College. With five candidates, a majority was needed, and the votes were split. In 1824, the votes, the nation, they seemed split between three prime candidates in that race, Andrew Jackson, Henry Clay, and John Quincy Adams. Henry Clay, known as the Great Compromiser, was one of 19th century America's most notable politicians who never made it to the White House. California, Texas, Missouri, credit Clay for those states. Of course, America sold out the rights to a lot of slaves, former slaves, and free blacks alike just to make it happen, but we'll cover that in a few. It's part of the Compromise of 1850, which included the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Yes, there is more than one Fugitive Slave Act. This is America. The nation was as divided as ever, but 1850, that's a quarter century from where we are now, just to say that Henry Clay had plenty more to do than just foobar an entire political system. Remember how I told you John Quincy Adams' presidency was shrouded in cries of shenanigans? Well, thank Henry Clay for that one, too. The 1824 election was the first and only time the Twelfth Amendment has had to be used. The Twelfth Amendment says, if our process doesn't select a clear winner, the election of the President of the United States gets sent to the House of Representatives. Henry Clay, a compromiser, but not really a strategist, was quite boastful of his love of gambling, and ultimately he gambled on his eventual White House ambitions and lost. A gifted orator and lawyer, Clay began his political life on the coattails of Jeffersonian ideals and would grow to be admired by Abraham Lincoln, so much so that many of Clay's words appear in Lincoln's speeches. Henry Clay's impact on this nation is immeasurable. I taught it as an intern in school. Legislation and speeches aside, it was during the election, as the House of Representatives made their first round of voting, Clay, behind in the votes and unlikely to make it to the next round, threw his support behind his closest opponent in ideology, the erratic and obstinate John Quincy Adams. Adams won on the first ballot, shocking many in the House and the nation. Andrew Jackson was the clear winner of the popular vote and the clear favorite to be president. 
Henry Clay would eventually be appointed Secretary of State under President John Quincy Adams, which brought about a huge outcry by Jackson's supporters. And like Romulus and Remus, Isaac and Ishmael, Laverne and Shirley, we have before us, thanks to the complex and unique 1824 election, a cataclysm that would eventually evolve into our modern American two-party political landscape. That's right, the Democratic-Republican Party, hyphenated, became the Democratic and Republican parties. Andrew Jackson's loyalists, you know, most of the country, became the Democrats, while the ideology behind Clay and Adams' side became the National Republican Party, which would evolve into the Whig Party, which leads us to the modern Republican Party through the National Republican Party, which is kind of Lincoln's party, but more after. Gets confusing. Another podcast. This episode focuses on the Democrats, but man, if I ever get into the Republican Party, boys, it's a mess all over the place. John Quincy Adams' term was short-lived, stifled with obstruction within his own party's chaotic beginnings, as well as with the new Democratic Party. First of all, people just didn't like the guy. He was an ass. The claims of corruption and conspiracy surrounding the election would be stirred by Jacksonian Democrats for the next several years. And in 1828, running on, quote, true Jeffersonian principles, Andrew Jackson would get his political revenge. Andrew Jackson, our seventh doctor, was a two-term president. Jackson was an early critic against an aristocratic lean and a warrior against corruption at the top of our nation using his own experience four years prior as an example. Jackson also held true to the Democratic Party's foundational belief in the idea of natural rights, which really sounds kind of hypocritical. Considering the trail of tears and slavery too, both cruelties and inhumanities that will forever tarnish our reputation as a nation and Jackson's reputation as a president. Natural rights, the idea that all humans are granted basic rights, not by law or society, but basic human rights just to exist. It was something the early founders of this nation held dear. Again, it's difficult to reconcile without some serious historical sociology and psychology study. Yet, his atrocities to the native indigenous peoples of this land, as well as some of the attitudes of the early party on slavery, well, <laughs> it makes it a hard sell to say the party was founded on a principle to which it couldn't adhere. But again, natural rights back then, and considering the opposition wasn't exactly pro-free blacks, even if they were anti-slavery, slavery wasn't that simple for the North or the South. Natural rights, it's been at the root of the liberal movement, specifically the progressive wing of the liberal movement, from the beginning. You'll hear many Democrats today talk about health care as a right, so this is really where a lot of the banter back and forth comes from. When some attempt to discredit the work of Democrats by citing that they were against the Constitution and for slavery, both things abstractly could be somewhat factual. But making a statement so broad-sweeping is problematic. It just wasn't that simple. The anti-federalist movement, the ones who didn't want a constitutional republic, fermented and brewed the Democratic Party. Remember, states' rights over federal oversight will be a big story in 19th century America. Many Democrats, also Southerners, were also anti-abolitionist. And whether you want to argue that they were racists or merely representing their constituents, the moral quandary of slavery hangs over our heads and our history, like a pall, until something is done to right the sin against humanity. So, while the purity test needs to be filtered sometimes for relevance to the time period, writings from some of our most brilliant minds of the time and some of our most notable leaders provide us the insight that even back then, many slave owners were struggling with the morality of it. So, like I said before, maybe sometimes we can toss a, yeah, but it was a different time out there. With slavery, I just don't think anyone gets a pass. 
there seemed to be a social awareness and a willful ignorance. Maybe for me, my purity test is one's humanity towards others. Still, for many back then, the issue of slavery was more economic than humane, which makes it even worse. Understand that there was a lot to gain and lose over the issue of slavery. The years leading up to the Civil War, which we'll get to, were filled with two newly formed political parties battling it out for control of the presidency and control of a nation starting to spin out of control on the verge of explosion. Following Jackson's run, Martin Van Buren, a man the press labeled Van Ruin, saddled with the baggage of the 1837 financial crisis where he was heavily criticized for bailing out the horse and buggy manufacturers. Okay, that was a joke. But Van Buren's single term was not impressive. I'm not saying Van Buren's presidency was bad, but a successor died in office after about a month. Tennessean James K. Polk became popular, hearkening back to some of Jackson's for-the-people policies. Polk supported annexing Texas for what it's worth, and Manifest Destiny was all the rage. Again, the Whig Party, old Republicans, were set for a disappointment after the guy they elected, Zachary Taylor, died of cholera 16 months in. Man, the Republicans just can't keep a president alive in the 1800s. Let's be honest, and no historical disrespect intended, cholera just may have been America's ally on that one. Taylor's presidency, as short-lived as it was, was a shameful disaster. I know, we're supposed to be talking about the struggles with the Democrats here, and I'll cover this more in another episode, but for just a moment, another critical turning point for modern American politics because of the struggles that would follow. You remember Henry Clay, the guy who blew up America's politics a quarter century ago? Ah, well, he's back with that Compromise of 1850 I talked about. Passed as an appeasement to keep the nation from splitting, the Fugitive Slave Act, part of the Compromise of 1850, gave free reign for the capture and return of blacks to slave owners among many other things. It gave rise to bounty hunters. What ensued was a Wild West hunt through the streets, much like modern-day ice with the Latinx community. And about anybody who wanted to catch them one could. They were deputizing just about anybody. It didn't matter if the person was a free slave or a black person in the North who had never even been a slave. They could be kidnapped and taken to the South. And there wasn't a lot anybody could do about it, unless you had the money to hire a lawyer, that is. Yeah, corruption in our government, in our legal system, even back then. It was, to say the least, disastrous legislation, which fed into the eventual uprising, unrest, and secession. While it gave Texas her border and allowed California entry as a free state, because back then every new state admission into the Union was a big negotiation on whether they would allow slaves or not. Well, we're allowing this one in. We got to allow that one to be in uh, the other way next. Whew. I mean, it was a disaster. The cost on America's soul was permanent with slavery. It was the compromise to keep the Union together, but it would only serve to tear us further apart. Cholera, while a nasty little disease back then, just was not fast enough. Zachary Taylor's presidency's trademark policy, 1850's Fugitive Slave Act, was passed a couple of months after he died. His VP and successor, Millard Fillmore, decided whether he agreed with it or not, he had to honor the legislation the president had supported rather than veto. Tensions in our new little nation are high! And the issue of slavery was chief among the dividing issues. Race relations weren't what they are today. The mistake many make is examining history through modern lenses. In fact, the Three-Fifths Compromise told us everything we needed to know about how this country viewed African Americans. These weren't people to the American government. They were assets like cattle, cannons, or a cabinet. Now, I'm being a little harsh, there were a lot of sympathizers in America. Humane people who saw blacks as people, equal or not. And there were a great many abolitionists within our government fighting for the right thing. Just 
not that that many of them were Democrats. And to understand that comes at a price. The price of losing a talking point. Democrats fought for slavery. Yeah, that's true. So did some Republicans. Fact is, the division at the Mason-Dixon line was one of industrial and agricultural, but cultural, cultural as well. The South relied heavily on free or very, very, very cheap slave labor, while the North, where slavery was abolished, had to pay their workers. Hell, look at this as the period for the very reason unions exist. We know how bosses will treat their workers if we let them. I've been in the workforce. Believe me, I know. So, economically speaking, of course the Democrats, the Southern Democrats, fought for slavery. It was the backbone of Southern economy. It's the biggest reason the South was even able to secede. <laughs> That's right. The Southern states' secession from the North, the ultimate white privilege. Think about it. Our entire economy was dependent on the slaves working and harvesting for free or very minimal compensation. So if someone got elected and then told the Southern businessmen and landowners, hey, uh, you, you know how you hadn't been paying these folks uh, for all the hard work they've been doing for you? Hey, you're really going to need to start paying them now. You can see why there might be some folks that are just a little bit pissed. I'm not trying to simplify one of the greatest acts of domestic terrorism and inhumanity America has ever committed against her own people. Just to say that it wasn't in any way simple. <laughs> it's really not simple. They weren't our people. We kidnapped them from somewhere. <clears throat> While by the time the actual civil war began to take rise, there were many who actually acknowledged slavery should be abolished in the South, Southern Democrats. And they just disagreed with how that should be handled. And let me explain it to you this way. There are a lot of moving parts in any issue. And just saying, hey, y'all can leave, <laughs> that wasn't fair to the landowners or the slaves. How can slavery be fair in any way? It, it can't. But simply put, one day all of these people have a place to live and at least some food to eat. Yet they lack skill, education, training, or, or yeah, some, can, some can barely talk. And then they're all suddenly homeless. Freedom. And what happened to them after? Well, that was the argument. What do we do with it? all these are they citizens? I mean, what do we do now? And how do we get a workforce? The South was, was really scared more than anything, and it's not that they didn't, towards the end especially, sympathize, many of them. It was a matter of there was no way to rectify it without destroying everything that they had worked for. That doesn't excuse it. Barely explains it. It's, it's just a shame. And it's sad that both sides were culpable in it, but the Southern Democrats... That's something hard to get out from under. Imagine if America did to the free slaves what she did to the Native Americans, shuffling them off into their own little communities away from all the... Oh, shit, that... Now, back on track. Zach Taylor's policies, combined with the threat of secession over new state slave status, spelled as doom. Remember, every state that came into the Union, there was a big fight over whether it's going to be a free state or a slave state. Big negotiations. But incidentally, Taylor was a hardliner against secession. 
He saw it as an attack of treason against the Union. Hell, he offered to lead the army should there come a war over it. He talked about hanging those who would betray the Union by seceding. Eh, he was a charmer and a unifier, that Zack. His death paved the way for compromise and staved off the split of the Union for about 11 years. Millard Fillmore, not elected by the people, would be the last president of the Whig Party as it evolved into the party of Lincoln eight years later. Between then, widely regarded as the worst president in the history of these here United States, the Democrat Franklin Pierce. He viewed the greatest threat to national unity, the abolitionist movement. I, yeah, here, here's, here's the thing about Pierce. He was a racist in a time when we needed compassion. Pierce's politics were downright cruel and inhumane. Some of the Fugitive Slave Act's worst years were under Pierce. And with different leadership, this could have been a period where America may very well have avoided a civil war altogether. Or with someone more diplomatic, we... Eh, who knows what the effects could have been. But instead of attempting to bring people together, Pierce's blatant disregard for the other perspective, his aggressive pursuit of anti-abolitionist legislation, well, it just... It throws him to the bottom of just about every list of presidential rankings. Oh, <laughs> those are going to have to be redone now. All his presidency served to do was further divide the nation, guarantee the war. America needs a sociopolitical genius, the likes of Jefferson, Washington, Madison, even Franklin. America needed someone with vision. That was not Franklin Pierce. One term was enough for the party. Tensions were brewing and America was about to implode. Pierce, <laughs> he wasn't even nominated for a second term. That, that's got to suck. But his successor, James Buchanan, did nothing to help the cancer eating away at our nation. I mean, imagine this. You take office just as the Civil War breaks out and you just, you, you just really just don't even address the elephant in the room. I mean, he didn't even address slavery. B Buchanan, the Democrat, oh, now he did not only didn't address it. <laughs> he was a tank of kerosene. He supported the Supreme Court's ruling in the Dred Scott case. He sided with the politicians of the South who wanted to admit Kansas into the Union as a slave state. Again, you know, he, every state's got to be bargained for. And California comes in as a free state. Kansas wants to come in as a slave state. <laughs> There's a lot going on in Kansas as it is anyway. And really for the president, the Democrat, to jump in and support that. Yeah. Again, here are the Democrats, the party for the people who are standing up for slavery. Why, it's a hard pill to swallow. But as the Democrats supporting slavery should be a stain on their side, the Republicans' efforts to use slavery as a political issue, it's their ugly cross to bear. Slavery wasn't just one party's shame. Slavery was America's shame. Admit it, it's a lot to take in. It's like that part of the Bible where so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And so and so on. But just to say that leading up to the Republican Party's formation and their first successful presidential candidate, both the Democrats and the party that would become the Republicans, <laughs> they were tripping all over themselves. Think about it. Since Andrew Jackson left office, nearly a quarter century passes until Lincoln, 24 years. Eight different presidents. Two of them died in office. Both could be considered Republicans. Two non-elected presidents. And it was a string of one-term presidencies. The Democrats scored back-to-back -back wins, but that hardly counts since it was Pierce and Buchanan. 
These parties are desperately trying to find themselves to figure themselves out, a distinct parallel to what's happening to their constituents across the country. Do you think the voters felt well represented? We aren't even a hundred years old, and we're already splitting at the seams. The Republican Party is formed, and Abraham Lincoln goes down in history. The Civil War's over, and uh, that's been covered quite a bit by just about everybody. And just like with Kennedy, a hundred years from then, rumors of the opposing party's involvement would run rampant. But who would succeed the assassinated Lincoln while a nation healed from division and destruction of her civil war? Republican and Democrat gave way to blue and gray, north and south. Remember how I said one party had split into geographic representation? Well, this was the culmination of that. A distinct divide in our nation. A scar. Political positioning was traded for military positioning. The bloodshed of a nation who would carry that stain forever. America needed leadership to heal. America got Andrew Johnson. Another Democrat. Johnson would go down in history books and become one of the presidents children learn about in school. Andrew Johnson would become the first president to be impeached. Not a formally educated man. He fought hard against the rights of the free blacks. He ran into constant opposition and made some serious enemies during his brief stint, blocking key Reconstruction legislation to help rebuild the decimated South after the war. Both Northerners and Southerners alike detested Johnson. All the drama notwithstanding, it should be noted that the Democrat Johnson took office amidst a completely swung Congress. Republicans held majorities. While Johnson lacked the power balance to get anything done, he also lacked the people skills to compensate for it. Like with the Democrat Franklin Pierce, America had made a grievous error in judgment, and it was showing. Here, the Democrats got another shot and blew it again. It's a story that keeps going over and over. Post-Civil War, a perfect time to step in, unify the nation under one agreeable message, and the Democrats got Franklin Pierce to start the war and Andrew Johnson to pick up the pieces. With all this, it's a wonder the party even exists today. The Democrats, who began with very Jeffersonian principles, when it mattered, sided with slavery throughout much of the 19th century. Republicans fought for the rights of the slaves and free blacks, <laughs> but it wasn't altruistic. The South had garnered a lot of power and influence, and it was reflected in our elections. But the Northern economy was very different from the Southern economy. Thus, the politics were different. And that's sort of the beginning of money in politics and how it influences the swing of these parties' influence. And when you're one nation playing by two different sets of rules, something the Founding Fathers sought to avoid through a federal government, things get a little tense. Kind of like now, with the income inequality and the wealthy not paying taxes. This was an issue that was far more complex than just sitting down at a negotiating table. To end slavery and rectify this crime against humanity, America would have to change just about everything she knew, especially the South. The North wished to free slaves, in part to level out the power dynamic in the Union. A freed slave population would weaken the South's secession hopes, and, as disgusting as it sounds, Republicans even staved off slave liberation in some cases to sow discontent among slaves in hopes they would rise up. This is a trademark Republican strategy. Convince the people you're working for them, and they'll never look to see what you're actually doing. Shake their hand with one hand, stab them with the other. And now, back to the Democrats. 
From its inception, the Democratic Party has been struggling. Following the impeachment of President Johnson, the Democrats wouldn't see the White House for 16 years and four presidents. Civil War hero Ulysses S. Grant served two terms, followed by Rutherford B. Hayes, who had announced he would only serve a single term, and then James A. Garfield, who was best known for being assassinated six months into his presidency. See? Republicans in the 1800s, <laughs> they just can't keep a guy alive long enough to do anything. Chester A. Arthur becomes the third president not elected by the people. And in a bizarre move, the Democrat Grover Cleveland serves two terms on either side of Benjamin Harrison's single Republican term. We're coming to the end of the 1800s, and the Democrats are just in shambles as far as their federal politics go. This isn't a discussion on overall power balance, by the way. This is about the presidency alone. It should be noted that there were many of our nation's great advances brought upon by the Democratic Party on the Supreme Court with liberals and, and even in Congress. But America's history, hey, it's steeped in suffering. Oh, no, 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 honey, not, not ours. I mean the suffering we cause, uh, both sides. So disclosures are what they are. Both sides have done good. Both sides have done bad. The Democrats on a federal level at this point, though, oh my God, they cannot seem to get ahead. Now, it's at this time that the ideals of liberalism and conservatism really start to get uh, incestuous. In that, when we talk about the parties morphing into one another, and the Democrats of today are the Republicans of then, it's a misnomer. The parties and their guiding lights, the ideals surrounding the Constitution and the federal government, those stay the same. Sure, the terms we use are more fluid. Some are abstract, like right and left. What do they mean? Liberal, conservative, federalist, democratic, republican, nationalist, socialist, capitalist. These words have clear definitions, and it's shocking how many people identify as one of these, yet cannot even define it. And so what we're talking about today is sort of how these labels evolve. It's worth talking about briefly, the topic of labels, liberalism, conservatism. I said they had definitions, and they seem to define us. So let's take a break and break it down before we get to the next step on the presidential path. Conservative is defined as, quote, holding to traditional attitudes and values and cautious about change or innovation, typically in relation to politics or religion. Now, if you look up conservatism, the political ideology, it's defined by Merriam-Webster as, quote, a political philosophy based on tradition and social stability, stretching established institutions and preferring gradual development over abrupt changes. Specifically, a philosophy calling for lower taxes, limited government regulation of business and investing, a strong national defense, and individual financial responsibility for personal needs like retirement income or health care coverage. Liberal. <laughs> Well, it means generous, ample, thy cup runneth over. But it also means lacking moral restraint, or not strict. Liberalism is defined as, uh, yeah, they, this is tricky, a theory in economics emphasizing individual freedom from restraint and usually based on free competition, the self-regulating market, and the gold standard. Nixon took us off that, by the way but also defined as a political philosophy based on a belief in progress, the essential goodness of the human race, and the autonomy of the individual, and standing for the protection of political and civil liberties and inequities like race, gender, class. So, by that logic, conservatives want lower taxes and limited government regulation, individual responsibility, 
liberals believe in a self-regulating free market, which, by the way, was completely dependent on the gold standard part of the definition. No gold means money has no meaning. There is no free market anymore, and the market is certainly not self-regulated. It's barely regulated, period. So, socially, liberals are for progress, and conservatives are for tradition and slower, more gradual change. Slow change. Liberals want freedom from restraint, so they don't want to be held back by the conservative trickle of advancement. It's a constant battle back and forth you'll see in the Democratic Party. However, now that we've examined a good hundred years of it, and now that you know this, does it put anything into perspective? The conservatives and liberals, back to the Federalists and Anti-Federalist movement. Well, could you really tell me which one was which? And how could these people at any point have coexisted in one party? I mean, think of Southern Democrats during the 1800s as conservatives, in the sense that they wanted to uphold the traditions of the past ways of doing things, and they wanted the federal government to stay out of their business. They wanted the federal government out of their business so bad, they went and started their own. And a lot of people died. Democrats were conservative, hard to argue. Remember, liberals were for progress and the protection of civil liberties. <laughs> Whigs, the party that would become the National Republican Party, then Lincoln's Republican Party, <laughs> were the liberals in the 1800s. It's like Chubby Checker and M. Night Shyamalan had a baby. Conservatives don't want the change to happen at all. Spoilers. So they compromise with slow, gradual change over long periods of time. Liberals push for progress while often ceding to the slow trickle tolerance of the conservatives. This is where the progressive movement comes into play. In various periods of our history, when the conservative ideology resists a specific turning point in our society and government, and the liberals veer too far to the middle to tolerate and indulge the boorish stagnancy of a stubborn traditionalist opposition for too long, an uprising, usually by the people themselves, is bound to occur, and has. We've seen in the birth of each party, the birth of our nation, and at some defining moments in America's history. We've also seen the side effect of extreme conservatism, white nationalists and the KKK, which could be seen as the blowback by conservatives who just weren't ready for that kind of change. Uh, Goldilocks of change. Too slow and progress halts. Too fast and you have chaos and anarchy. But if you get it just right... Confusion around the word liberal when compared to the term conservative politically it, for some reason really throws us off. Well, I mean, not for some reason. I just gave you a really good one. I described it. It's confusing as hell. These words, ideals, ideas, and ideologies have sort of just been tossed around and used and abused by both sides. Democrats and Republicans, liberal and conservative, it doesn't really mean anything politically, though. But we stamp ourselves one or the other, or we rise above and say we're neither. Yet, I'm not sure how many of us, myself included, could pass a high school government class. And I'm licensed to teach this. So Democrats prefer we be a democracy. Republicans want us to be a republic? Well, hang on, isn't China a republic? Wasn't Russia? And what are you conserving? It isn't government power and spending. And what is it you're liberal with? Giving everything away for free? How on earth do we put so much stock into these labels? We've talked about liberalism and conservatism. In the episode, The Progress of Board Games does a decent job of covering modern progressivism. 
and it's come up earlier. But what's been branded as the far-left extreme to the Liberal Party in America, progressivism is a pro-people, pro-working-class movement for progress in our society. And it's a movement that's been held back and threatened in America for nearly her entire existence by people who are more conservative, which is pretty much everyone who isn't progressive, right? This isn't my way or the highway. It's just simply put, two words, two definitions. If I'm for more or faster progress than you, then you're more conservative than I, correct? Like, I want to go to the next level, and you're not quite there yet. If put into these terms, our politics can begin to make a lot more sense. Try this. <clears throat> As a progressive, I think we need to accept that healthcare is a right, not a for-profit privilege. Or, as a conservative, I believe that's too much government involvement in my life. I don't want to be on the government's health plan. I believe that should be something a person pays for and takes care of themselves. The word liberal, because of America's complicated history with the term, mucks up pretty much every argument, just as it does today with the Democrats. Try it. Think of the first phrase, but pop liberal in there. It's different. As the party settled into the 20th century, the First World War, the Roaring Twenties, and subsequent Great Depression and World War II, they were still years down the road, and no one could predict the struggles ahead. America forged her path forward out of the South's crushing defeat, still torn by the very principles which still split our nation at birth. And those principles, the power and the role of the federal government, and the individual rights and responsibility, combined with post-Civil War restoration-flavored capitalism for a very combustible compound for our society. The brewing chaos over America's financial and banking system proves to be fuel for the dumpster fire of the economic crash ahead. Let me explain. Remember when we were talking about slavery, and I said, we know how bosses will treat us if we let them? What stops your boss from treating you like complete garbage is a little word we like to call regulation. There are rules and laws in place that if your boss does not behave in a professional manner, you have recourse. Now, it's a fair argument to make that you don't want government officials in your furniture store constantly monitoring your every move. That's far-fetched even for this government. But what happens without regulation? Capitalism. Run amok. Capitalism is an economic philosophy, not a political philosophy. Yet many Americans confuse their political affiliation with their beliefs in how they feel like an economy should work. Sure, many times the ideals align, but it's not always true. Capitalism is not a Republican ideal or a conservative ideal. <laughs> Capitalism, in fact, by the liberal definition, should be a liberal philosophy, right? So let's not get too caught up in identifying ourselves so staunchly by toxic and archaically dithering phrases that aren't reflective of our ideals as people. Woodrow Wilson's progressive policies also begin to frame America's social, economic, and political framework. A more empowered working class and the outlawing of child labor because, yes, when the slaves weren't an option, America turned to kids. And putting forth protections for the consumer were all things that would set the American people on a better path for the 20th century economic shift toward all-out capitalism and the boom following the Second World War. The First World War ended thanks to Wilson's reluctant but successful effort. The Treaty of Versailles was negotiated by Wilson, a feat which would earn him the Nobel Peace Prize the following year. And the era of prohibition began under the reign of the conservative Democrat Woodrow Wilson. Wilson also had push for the women's right to vote movement, making the 1920 election the first for women in America. You know, you really would think the Democrats would have won that one. I mean, did, did we really like booze that much? 
I guess so. The events surrounding the end of the First World War and the institution of the Federal Reserve Act would set us up for eventual collapse. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was an issue that divided our political system and would serve to earn Wilson some enemies within the party and across the aisle. He signed the act into law in December of that year, and it was fighting tooth and nail all the way to get it done. And maybe he viewed it as a necessary evil at the time. But the idea that a Democrat would voluntarily campaign to turn over monetary control over our entire system to anyone, oh, much less J.P. Morgan... It just seemed insane by the growing faction of progressives within the Democratic Party to surrender that much power. It left progressives with a sour taste in their mouths for Wilson's duration. He barely won re-election and probably wouldn't have won without the broken promise of no war. Conservatives and liberals of the time were at each other's throats over the banking crisis, and Wilson was pushing hard for banking reform because, well, he saw the corrupt system that was overstretched and ill-equipped to handle the expansive growth of our nation and our people. But in 1907, during Teddy Roosevelt's Republican two-term run, an economic collapse saw a stock market crash and banks go under. The federal government, already in hock up to their eyeballs, as my daddy would say, couldn't handle the burden of the eventual collapse. So... At that point, we have to turn to J.P. Morgan. Yeah, you've heard of them. They're still around today because they own America. And people think we bailed the banks out? Ha! They bailed us out. Another episode for the history of the banking and monetary system in America. But just know, it was controversial. The American people, suffering under the weight of an oppressive employment institution, were stifled by working conditions, low pay, and limited opportunities. And Wilson fought hard for progressive policies which would make for better, safer, and more humane workplaces and a more trained and expert workforce. But all the while, the fact that Wilson had basically advocated to turn all of our nation's and its people's money over to private bankers, authorized and empowered as federal agents for the purpose of banking, that all of our finances be tied to this conglomerate boardroom full of the wealthiest of the wealthy, and the most powerful and influential names you've never heard of was a scary notion. I'm not saying these bankers were bad people. I'm saying that at some point, America's political system, our representatives of the people, made the decision to hand over our monetary power and freedom to corporate mob bosses, people who had no idea or interest in the lives of the American people, more or less, and thus began the real infection of money into politics. Coalitions are formed, alliances, like an island survival show. But the scare of 1907 and the stock market crash was a moment where America really got in over their heads. It was clear not only to us, but the world, and word travels. And if you're financially weakened, as the American people can attest lately, your opportunities are limited and you become dependent on others. Plus, if we couldn't even keep the lights on, how could we stop someone if they wanted to invade and take over? What other option did we have? And so the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 set up a central banking system for the United States made up of a money trust of bankers who would pretty much regulate our economy. Something like 25 lawmakers, 24, abstained from voting on the act. Four Republicans voted against it. Democrats, for the most part, towed the line. We were a growing nation and we needed to organize and get our stuff together. We almost bit it in 1907 and something drastic had to be done. But as you're about to find out, it turned out to be like every credit card ever. And unlike a Lannister, America is not big on paying her debts. And it just seemed like more stumbles and disappointments by the Democratic Party. A hundred years on the bumpy path of American politics riding the Democratic struggle bus. Without digging deep into each presidential race, let me spread it out for you, because this is where it gets really embarrassing for our friends the Democrats, okay? 
We're hopping around a little bit, but we're still at the turn of the century, a time period which saw a decisive momentum swing for republicanism in America. Andrew Jackson, the first Democratic president, would be the last Democrat to serve two consecutive terms until Woodrow Wilson. So for nearly a century between Jackson and Wilson, only a third has been with Democrats in the White House. Of the 24 presidential terms and 23 men who served in that time span, only seven were Democrats. And Wilson was the Democrat who either saved or destroyed America's economy by turning us over to the bankers, depending on how you want to look at it. And Wilson was the Democrat who was barely re-elected to a second term, running with the slogan, he kept us out of war, which was very important to early 20th century Americans. He did, in fact, keep America out of the First World War until a second term when he deemed it unavoidable. It may have been, but make no mistake, Wilson saw this as an opportunity for American imperialism and expansion abroad. These choices didn't rest well with the American people struggling back home trying to build their communities and families. But with colonies around the world strengthening the wealth of the Dutch, French, British, and Spanish, uh, Woodrow Wilson knew that America's new manifest destiny was global. I mean, in a progressive light, it could be seen as a global vision of our people, not just the American people, you know, but uniting nations and building coalitions. It wasn't all invasions. Treaties and good work were done abroad, and that won Woodrow Wilson the Nobel, but Wilson lost the American people in the process. Loud Republicans would soon spell doom for the gasping Democrats, eager to get out from under the Woodrow Wilson cloud. Wilson would be rendered speechless by a stroke in 1919, but had been growing increasingly unpopular among both Republicans and Democrats. For the party, a fortunate, unfortunate circumstance. To begin a new path forward, a new Democratic Party, and a silenced president. What emerged from Wilson's progressive conservatism, if that's what you want to call it, was a stronger lean back to left for the party. The world saw chaos and revolutions, while our lawmakers debated about how we needed to be involved overseas. But as the war ended, so popped the economic bubble brought on by war. At home, race relations and the women's right to vote movement were seeing protests and riots, Back then, the American people were pissed because America took their money and just gave it to the banks. It isn't that simple, but there were attacks on Wall Street, terrorist attacks, strikes in major industries stalled production and further hindered our struggling economy. Unemployment soared. The 1920 election saw the nomination of newspaper tycoon James Middleton Cox to the top of the ticket to contend with the loud, boisterous, and often nonsensical word salad of Republican Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding was one of the most popular presidents of his time, uh, but that doesn't always mean it's a good thing. Let's just thank the gods that Twitter wasn't around back then. Cox and the Democrats were so desperate to beat Harding because, well, what was on the rise was the side of republicanism that was alarming to many within their own party, but certainly to the Democrats who were struggling and hemorrhaging influence. Harding was loud. He was brutally critical of Wilson and ran against him. <laughs> Eh, Cox kind of struggled against that. Harding dominated the narrative. The party, eager to seize the growing progressive disenfranchisement of the Wilson era, urged Cox toward New York Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The party seemed ready for her finest hour. Roosevelt, a moderate by those standards, was the future of the Democrats. But it wasn't enough. Americans were feeling the recession. A crash was coming, and staying on course wasn't on anyone's mind. Warren G. Harding's victory goes down as the largest popular vote margin in the history of America's presidential elections in a hundred years, since James Monroe, the crafter of our Bill of Rights. In fact, 
Cox won the entire South except for Tennessee, even Texas. Harding literally won every other state. Cue me some Stevie, cause I call it a landslide. Harding, to be fair, was a blowhard buffoon. He was either really smart or really not, and I'm leaning on the latter. It was hard to tell. His statements would be so confusing and difficult to understand that you really didn't know where he stood on issues. But when he went on the attack, well, he did so strongly, viciously. The Democrats just couldn't withstand the cost of war, pun intended. Americans didn't seem to care that we won the war. It wasn't here, and here we were struggling. Sort of like Reagan decimating Carter in 1980 with the question, are you better off today than you were four years ago? America answered definitively in 1920, just as they did 60 years later. And a Republican dominated and put another lengthy end to the Democratic Party. Despite Republican support for the League of Nations and assuring voters that Harding's presidency would guarantee it, <laughs> Harding had other ideas. He opposed America's entry into the International Alliance. Cox and Roosevelt made it a foundation of their platform. There was support across the aisles, and it was seen as a way to grow our influence abroad and maybe even prevent war. Harding said no. He felt like his election was a mandate on his ideals and not the party's. The people seemed to resonate with his anti-Wilson rhetoric, and he seemed to really let that get to his head. The Democrats were in retreat again, except this time they had a leader. Warren G. Harding was a gifted orator. When it came to delivering a speech, he was incomparable for his time among his peers. But in campaigning, he had a manner of speaking in twisted and confusing metaphors, which sort of just didn't make a whole lot of sense. But he sounded good saying it. Nod, clap, exciting. Seriously, Harding was a figurehead. Maybe he was someone the party felt they could manipulate. Oh, and they did. It seemed like if a Republican put a bill before Harding, it was signed before he even read it. Economics is a funny thing, complex, yet somehow predictable with enough time. America wasn't there. A growing nation with a developing financial system and having it tied to private corporate bankers really sort of put us back at the behest of royalty. America was flying by the seat of her pants back then, making up the rules as she went along with the banking system. Nobody had really done what we were doing before, the way we were doing it. And just having bills put before a pen-happy egomaniac. Uh. The post-war recession gave way to a brief boom setting the stage for the indulgence of those roaring 20s we've heard a lot about. And it certainly is compelling how our economy almost implodes in 1907. And by 1921, we've peaked and dipped several times. And like that guy at the party who keeps coming out of the bathroom sniffing, when a good time's going on, what do you do? Keep going to the bathroom. Yeah, keep the good times rolling, right? Right? But your friend eventually almost always collapses and nearly dies in your living room, ruining your Nana's rug. Right. Yeah, well... My point is, we're headed for a big old cocaine cash overdose. The Democrats, liberals, progressives, whatever they are, they are down. Harding's voice and persona is the face of the party and the face of the nation. They're tightening up on immigration, restoring tariffs, and they establish the federal budget. I didn't say managed. Along with that, Harding's Republicans revealed their true conservative nature. It wasn't that they wanted less federal oversight. They didn't want to be held accountable for their actions. Free reign, not a free market. And Harding allowed them that luxury. Oblivious to just about everything around him that wasn't him, Harding couldn't see the corruption stewing in his own office. When I say they revealed themselves, I mean this. Harding's promise to the American people was less government in business and more business in government. Now, taken through one perspective, 
The message could read that we want less regulation and interference from our government in our business affairs, and we want more businessmen in positions in government. That sounds like a strong populist message. Except that's not what they meant. They didn't mean businessmen like you or me, or businesswomen at all. They meant their businessmen in government to ensure our government turned a blind eye to whatever they were doing. The power in Washington had shifted. Liberals left reeling had to cope with the changing ideals of conservatism. In resorting to a central private banking system and a self-serving elected official base, Americans had to wonder, did we fight to be independent from one corruption just to cede to our own? What ended up was an administration riddled with corruption. When Harding learned of what was happening behind his back, he asked his Secretary of Commerce, future President Herbert Hoover, whether he should expose the ugly truths for the good of the nation and the party, or if he should cover it up. Hoover, for what it's worth, encouraged coming forward. Harding, fearing the political fallout on his legacy and his party, remained quiet. That secret, that burden, would prove too much to bear. Calvin Coolidge, Harding's vice president, succeeded the high office when Harding fell dead of a heart attack barely months after that conversation. Coolidge, unlike the previous VP stand-ins, would win re-election. Think of Calvin Coolidge as that wet blanket friend that just kind of craps on everything good. While Americans were roaring and bouncing back hard from the economic struggles of the previous 10 to 15 years, oh, Coolidge was kind of an old fuddy-duddy. He was a conservative traditionalist, politically, economically, morally. Coolidge's rise was due solely to the fact that, like Jimmy Carter, he was deemed to be a good man. Just not a lot of fun. A safe bet for America to overcome the disgrace and distrust the nation felt over the Harding debacle, but still reeling from the memories of war and no rush to get back to the Democrats. A turn from the corruption of his predecessor's administration, Coolidge was a return to the status quo for Republicans. He was pretty popular, too, to be honest. The economy was rocking along. Coolidge vowed not to use the power of the federal government to either sort of, you know, keep the post-war economic boom in check, you know, to ensure it remained stable. But he also wouldn't extend the federal government to step in with the struggling industry and agriculture. Actually, to be fair, Coolidge goes down in history for one really distinct personality trait. He really didn't do much of anything. I know, I said the economy was good, but our money was fake. It's all borrowed credit, and the economy is kind of cyclical. Housing bubbles and lending and spending and immigration, and we're growing. And then, once the shine wore off and the credit card bill came due, America was in for a hard lesson. But Americans didn't care right now because things look good. Coolidge snagged 54% of the popular vote for re-election in 1924. Not bad for a wet blanket. 1924, incidentally, was the first election where all Native Americans were allowed to vote, as they were now considered citizens. Women, just four years earlier. It's clear there are social movements in America, and the progressive voice is moving forward. Listen, when I say status quo Republican, <laughs> I mean it. A man of few words, Calvin Coolidge knew one word very well. No. I mean, if Harding, yes, 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 signed everything, oh, Coolidge was Mr. No. No to farm bills, no to America's agriculture industry, no to a plan that would enable federal power to be produced cheaply on the Tennessee River. Huh, wait, that sounds like, ah, I will get to that. America's industry and agriculture were failing, but who knew? Because by appearances, a lot of Americans were doing really well. A growing faction of Americans, though, caught between the failures and broken promises of the Democrats and the stringent oppressive thumb of the Republicans were growing dissatisfied with the status quo. Coolidge's resistance to step in caused irreparable damage to our nation's economy. 
But in the mid-1920s, Coolidge was playing hardball, swinging with a pool noodle. Americans looked at the tight economy as the reason the economy was thriving, failing to see the danger up ahead. I mentioned Coolidge easily won re-election in 1924, remember? Well, nothing is easy in our history. So it was a decisive victory, but at this time, the Democrats were split between the liberals and the progressives. I told you I'd get back to the Democrats. Wilson's tenure had bred plenty of resentments and ill feelings toward the Democratic status quo strategies. The best the Democrats could muster in 1924 was another conservative Democrat, John W. Davis, the W for West Virginia. Look, nobody even knew this guy. The Republicans were running on the economy, keeping us out of war, and constantly pointing out Democratic failures. For example, always just being afraid to be yourself. Democrats have often veered to the right in order to appeal to more on-the-fence Republicans. It seems they've always been afraid to push their own agenda. And at this time, just like in recent years, the status quo agenda of the party, that compromising and being thankful for the scraps, was frustrating liberals who wanted more from their federal government than what Republicans and conservatives were offering. So in 1924, a big chunk of liberal Democrats swayed toward Robert La Follette Sr., a senator from Wisconsin running as the third-party progressive candidate. Just like in 1920, a straight north-south split, except this time Coolidge would trade Tennessee for Kentucky on the map. Probably had to do with that power on the Tennessee River thing. Republicans took the Coolidge victory as a mandate against the Democratic Party, which was now fractured and bleeding. A meek man with little to say, his feelings on the American political landscape were clear when he announced simply that he would not seek re-election in 1928. I mean, literally, that's all he said. Easiest press conference ever. In 1928, the Democratic Party, not learning from its failure with the Davis nomination, put up Al Smith, Roman Catholic. And as many Catholics I've known go, he was anti-prohibition, which was a hot topic of the day. Plus, guys, without getting into the hundreds of years of corruption, collusion, and blasphemy the Catholic Church is guilty of, back then it went beyond just criticism of a corrupt institution. This was out-and-out -out bigotry. Catholics weren't viewed kindly in many parts of America. The KKK targeted them. And personally, while I've been very critical on the institution of the Catholic Church and its many corruptions and sins against humanity, I've never even considered holding a Catholic individually responsible. But back then, the anti-Catholic bigotry was rampant. So the Democrats, trying to overcome a booming economy, put up a weak candidate. This is the legacy of the Democrats. If there's a weak candidate, they're going to put him or her up. There wasn't a chance. Herbert Hoover, promising a continued Coolidge prosperity, won all but eight states, losing the South, still reeling from Coolidge's stinginess towards the agricultural industry. The Democrats were sent packing again in a defeat that spelled utter humiliation for their future. Still struggling to bring in the progressives while catering to the liberal conservatives, the future was bleak to the Democrats. Lucky for them, the future was bleak for everybody, so nobody really noticed. The corruption of the Harding administration, combined with both Calvin Coolidge's staunch and stubborn conservatism and the disastrous Herbert Hoover administration, breeds a sweeping change that has been brewing in America for over a century. And this period is very, very important because America got royally raw-dogged by their own political policy. Herbert Hoover, who served in the corrupt Harding administration and encouraged Harding to come clean, ran assuring voters that America was nearing an end to poverty. And in less time than it takes to incubate a baby, Hoover's presidency saw the Great Economic Crash of 1929 and the subsequent Great Depression.
Hoover, a humanitarian in World War I, opposed America's entry into the Second World War. And look, it's easy to judge Hoover, but for reals, he inherited this ghoulish prosperity. And when that post-World War I and tight budget bubble exploded, oh, it exploded all over Hoover's face. And he tried. He tried desperately to stave off the coming catastrophe. He called industry leaders himself and employers and begged them not to lay off or fire employees, not to cut pay for employees. He argued that it would hurt our economy further. He wasn't wrong. He offered tax cuts. He put people to work. This Republican, a conservative, saw that when the crisis arose, put the money into the people's hands if you want a chance at saving the economy. As American businesses closed en masse and Americans began to feel the strain of poverty again, even pushing the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which is basically a bank set up to help other banks and industries bounce back, it flopped. And damn be damned, Hoover sealed America's economic fate when he signed into law the Smoot-Hawley Act. The idea was to raise import tariffs to offset the lowered taxes for the people. Good idea, right? Except that the other countries who got their uh, taxes raised didn't think so. They just stopped buying our stuff, and we needed people to buy our stuff. The Depression had set in, and Americans were struggling. So the 1938 presidential election pits Hoover, without the luxury of Coolidge's economy, up against the former governor of New York and former vice presidential candidate just a dozen years earlier. This brings us full circle to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, America's first true liberal Democrat in a century. A dominating mandate was issued with FDR winning all but six states, all of those in the Northeast. Somewhat considered somewhat conservative in his previous political positions, Roosevelt's new Democrats, with strong progressive influence, ran on real change for Americans. FDR's New Deal, a sweeping first 100-day strategy filled with broad-reaching federal programs, was a risky gamble. Democrats hadn't had much luck getting any kind of momentum for 100 years. And finally, it takes a president with the vision to recognize that incorporating other philosophies, adapting them to fit your own as an alternative to the status quo, Roosevelt's landslide victory also brought the end of a period of what many call the fourth-party system, the Republican-dominated era from McKinley to Hoover, with the exception of Wilson's eight years. FDR's presidency ushered in the fifth-party system in American politics. That would extend to 1960 and set the stage for a new Democratic Party, one that would unite the liberals and progressives a little bit more. The New Deal's success was a mandate for progressives, who had fought hard for these policies during a restrictive and stingy Republican era. Now, that cheap federal energy on the Tennessee River? <laughs> that became the Tennessee Valley Authority. There was an understanding that, for the greater good of society, a federal government of a nation this size should be more than what we thought it should be a hundred years ago. The New Deal put Americans to work and reshaped the America we all know and love today. The dirty little secret, though, is that these were largely considered socialist policies and were considered by Hoover and Republicans as socialist policies and were criticized. Even some conservative Democrats were alarmed at the federal expansion federal expansion. Again, here we are, with the federal government's power and role over the American people at the center of it all. Conservative traditionalists, you'd think the Republicans would have really clung to the uh, trusty old Articles of Confederation, while the liberals would flock to a new progressive constitution. In fact, by today's standards, it was the other way around. And while liberals fought to keep slavery, it was the conservative traditionalists fighting to end the practice. I mean, by today's standards. 
<laughs> and now, the Democrats, the anti-federalists for crying out loud, the Democrats expanded federal government larger and more far-reaching than it had ever been, and it was Coolidge's Republicans who wouldn't budge, not even to save the American farmer. Now, I'm not kidding when I say FDR's win was a mandate. Just like after Woodrow Wilson, America was done with the previous administration and party. But also like Woodrow Wilson's election, it was a sweeping win across a vast majority of America. Now, when Democrats win, they win big, it seemed. It was just the winning at all that seemed to be the problem. Incidentally, speaking of Wilson, progressives and how parties evolve, in the 1912 election where Wilson beat Taft, FDR's cousin and Taft's two-term Republican predecessor, ran on the Progressive Party ticket, coming in at a distant second to Wilson. Oh, you don't remember? Teddy Roosevelt. With FDR and Wilson, the wins in their first election were broad-sweeping, capturing a strong majority of states from all over the nation. However, if you look, there's a concerning trend in American politics during this time period. In the three presidential elections from 1900 to Wilson, and in the three between Wilson and Roosevelt, there's a distinct North-South divide with the South voting Democrat and the North largely voting Republican. It's easy to understand when you look at the smothering and short-sighted policies that brought on the Great Depression, the South saw the brunt of the lack of vision. But it goes to show how you might not think that today. Today, Republicans are going to win the South and liberals are going to win just about anywhere else. As we've learned in the progress of board games, America's agricultural industry would be saved, by the way rebounding from near decimation with future vice president and progressive Henry A. Wallace. Wallace, the third of his name, served as Secretary of Agriculture and was a huge advocate for government intervention into the failing ag industry, years before they actually did. Wallace's father had served as Ag Secretary, and his grandfather, a minister, was well-regarded and known throughout the Midwest's farmland for his journal articles on farming. And in the previous episode, a lot of FDR's complicated yet successful presidency was briefed over. But it warrants a deeper dive here because the Democratic Party stood at the precipice of a turning point in American political history. Roosevelt's primary rival, Texas Senator John Nance Garner, was selected by the party as his running mate, a balance to FDR's radical progressivism. Garner was a, a brash and unlikable little bastard. He didn't care for the president at all, but he saw it as his mission to do whatever he could to defend conservatism within the Democratic Party. Garner, like most moderates who wish to kowtow to Republican ideals, feared Roosevelt's direction. While opposing Roosevelt, at times publicly, Garner was bigger than that vice president's office and marked a significant change in how that office was treated before it was largely administrative, assistant to the regional manager. But Garner took on a lot more and did quite a bit to benefit the party and the Roosevelt administration in the first term. Growing more and more dissatisfied with the direction of the party and the presidency, Garner wouldn't have much to say after the 1936 election where we saw another massive landslide victory for the Democrats. America was done with the Republicans and riding the bus to recovery with Roosevelt. For all the help Garner did in the first VP term, his second was almost all adversarial. He turned on Roosevelt, undermining the administration at every turn. The 1936 Democratic Convention is important. This is where they changed the rules that to win, you needed two-thirds of all the delegates to win a simple majority when it came to approving the nominee and his running mate. Now, this rule change also enabled presidents to pick their running mates. This is important because, remember, Garner was forced on Roosevelt to balance the progressive policy so the party didn't skew too far left, if you will. With balance on the ticket, the rules changes passed, 
and that process of picking the running mate still exists today. Not to say there isn't pressure, but you know. Now, flash forward. Jack Garner is a thorn in the side of Roosevelt that entire second term. There were some early disagreements in the first term which set the stage for the split, but it mostly came down to control and power. Roosevelt enjoyed the new duties Garner brought to the office, but it was his unilateral and stubborn style combined with just being a general son of a bitch to everyone that was ultimately enough for the president. That and Garner just couldn't resist showing his ass all the time. He was a hoot, don't get me wrong. I mean, so long as you weren't the target. But in 1937, Roosevelt called a meeting to the White House. Garner and power players from Congress showed up to hear FDR lay out his plan to reorganize and reform and expand the Supreme Court. Oh boy, you want to irritate a conservative anything, Republican or Democrat? You talk some big change. They lose their minds, and many in the room did. The suggestion seemed somehow un-American to Garner. The long game for FDR was to appoint six new justices to the court, which would guarantee decades of liberal reform. Many lashed out against the idea, worrying that it would politically bias the bench. Garner wasn't concerned so much about that as he was the unilateral handling of the very controversial topic. Roosevelt was an ask-for-forgiveness-rather-than-permission kind of president. FDR's audacity to push forth such drastic legislation in such a bold manner caused a rift in the party and in Washington. While the American people resoundingly loved Roosevelt, many within his own party were starting to raise questions. When the bill went before the Senate floor, Garner held his nose and issued a thumbs down. Yeah, yeah, thank God Twitter wasn't around. If that wasn't enough, when Congress prepared to debate the legislation, Garner was nowhere to be found. He wasn't even in Washington. He headed back to Texas. While he said it wasn't in protest, the intent behind that fishing trip was clear. The bill to expand the Supreme Court died with the death of Joseph Robinson, who was the Democratic Senate Majority Leader. Roosevelt tried desperately to combat the growing conservative movement in the party and preserve the policies he felt would reshape America's future. Ultimately, infighting within the Democratic Party, just as it always had been, ignited a toxic working relationship between the president and vice president. Roosevelt tried to put in a New Deal loyalist into Robinson's position. Remember, the positive effects of many of the New Deal's programs wouldn't be felt for years to come. The American people were poor enough they didn't have much else to do but be patient. American politicians, though, impatient old cusses. And even after the first 100 days and the New Deal really began to take hold into the first second terms, the party seemed ready to move into a more reined-in conservative era. Roosevelt had been contending with splintered factions within his own party for a while. The party that just couldn't get it together was now the party that couldn't keep it together. Roosevelt had a vision and a plan. Uh, Jack Garner and his cronies were no longer a part of that plan. In 1938, FDR took on the Democratic establishment who sought to undermine his authority, undo the progress that had been made, and hinder the progress to be made. The conservatives within the Liberal Party had conspired against the president's plans too many times. Roosevelt had unified the party six years earlier and managed the Great Depression. He won sweeping landslides. Still, the party was wary of the success. Maybe they were right. Roosevelt intervened in the primary elections, seeking to root conservatism out from the party and push more liberal Democrats. Garner opposed the interference as unfair to local constituents. Garner warned Roosevelt that attempting to rock the boat of the party would ensure Republican victories. Cactus Jack was right. 81 House seats and 8 Senate seats were lost to Republicans in that election. Not only that, Garner's warning 
that what would be left for Roosevelt were staunch enemies in his ranks would prove correct. Except one of those enemies wouldn't be Jack Garner. This would pass, the Democrats would rebound, the party told themselves. By 1940, Roosevelt will move on and America will have a new Democratic president. So the party thought. A growing discontent was brewing again among Democrats, so consumed with greed and self-ambition that they just couldn't accept what was working. The balance of power was shifting with the New Deal, empowering the working class, education, infrastructure, trade. The war was brewing overseas. Americans were adamant we stay out of it. But there was this impatience because the New Deal wasn't an immediate panacea for the Great Depression. America was struggling seriously, and the second term for Roosevelt was difficult thanks to Garner's obstinance and Roosevelt's ambitious arrogance. The decision to run for an unprecedented third term was problematic at best, Yes, the 1940 election was historic. Garner claims at the 37th inauguration, Roosevelt and Garner mutually promised they would both retire at the end of the term. FDR, as he always did, had other plans. In fairness, he wasn't wrong. A presidential election, as vicious as they were getting, with tensions abroad and our unstable economy, it wasn't in the nation's best interest to usher in so much change. Roosevelt's approach was to grant the American people the choice Keep going, or try something different. The victory wasn't as huge as previous, but definitive nonetheless. Garner told folks he wouldn't openly campaign, but he wouldn't turn down the VP nomination either. He wouldn't get the chance. Thanks to the new rules of the 36th Convention, Roosevelt was no longer tethered to the toxic Garner. In 1940, when Garner finally had enough of the progressive bullpucky, he stomped back to Texas and Roosevelt needed a replacement. Learning his lesson from Garner, both good and bad, FDR was a bit spoiled by Garner's ambitious approach toward the duties of vice president and sought a man who could carry more than the traditional duties, while also looking for someone who would easily be able to adapt to FDR's ever-evolving vision of what the title should be. He also needed a loyalist, both to the administration and the New Deal. Roosevelt chose little-known politician and corn farmer from Iowa, Henry A. Wallace, Wallace had more than impressed FDR as Ag Secretary, saving America's farmlands from ruin. Wallace was a true hardline progressive, and that appealed to Roosevelt, who needed cooperation and less tension from his number two. Many delegates were not happy with the decision, and the American people were about to be pretty unhappy too. Roosevelt had assured the American people that if elected to a third term, America would stay out of wars overseas. But in pure Woodrow Wilson fashion, Roosevelt lied to the American people. The need for America's intervention in the war was clear for years. It wasn't about whether we should. It was about how we could and still get by with the support of the American people who wouldn't tolerate another war and economic bust. Still, the promise was enough to ensure a third-time victory. The answer of how we got involved came later at Pearl Harbor, and America would be headed to war within months of FDR's third inauguration. Again, remember the Democrats are pretty much using progressivism at this point to get America back on track. Now, their long-term plan and tendency is to steer the party and the country right back to the middle. With Wallace, there was no balance. Hell, Wallace was a stark contrast to Garner in almost every imaginable way. Listen, if you're Roosevelt right now, you have got to be frustrated. I mean, Garner was a Texas cowboy, brash, loud, and, and just a bastard. Difficult to work with and someone the president couldn't trust. Wallace was a soft-spoken and deliberately worded man. Not the greatest public speaker, Wallace was more gifted with the written word. 
He might fumble around delivering a speech, but the message was solid. And being that this was pre-media, many in Washington didn't really know him. He wasn't out giving stump speeches, and what speeches he gave, well, he was just kind of an unknown. FDR traded the pains of dealing with Garner for a man who had quite possibly a more liberally visionary plan for America well, than even FDR had. In one respect, it was like the progressive dream ticket, right? But Roosevelt must have felt like he can't win for losing. I mean, he gets rid of the anchor around his neck in Garner, and he finally gets a passionate loyalist in place, and it's just so... Just like Wallace... Well, Wallace was just really freaking weird, man. I mean, like, dude was quiet and intellectual, like, deeply pensive. And, like, when you talk to him, like, he wasn't one to just run his mouth. When you talk to Wallace, it was almost like he would pause for that moment, and you're just in that place where it's just awkward, and you're not sure what to say next. But when I say he's a deliberately spoken man, he thought out his words very, 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 very well and very long. Wallace was, instead, a listener carefully processing his thoughts. Wallace wasn't outgoing like many politicians. He was reserved and shy, and he was also not a typical Christian. Raised that way under a minister grandfather, Wallace considered himself a lot of things. His personal beliefs weren't the things of typical Sunday morning sit-and-stand-past-the-plate. Wallace preferred mysticism and New Age, Eastern principles, Buddhist, Taoism. Wallace was a humanist who saw the world much differently than most in Washington. He thought differently than most in Washington. And he looked and acted differently. And what do we know about conservatives and people who are different? The U.S. Senate website entry on Wallace quotes Alan Drury, a journalist who covered the Senate at the time. He said this, and I think it describes Wallace pretty well. Drury states, A shock of silver graying hair sweeps over to the right of his head in a great shaggy arc. He looks like a hayseed, talks like a prophet, and acts like an embarrassed schoolboy. Drury seemed to like Wallace enough, regardless of politics. The writer at least seemed to sympathize with some of the struggles that Wallace faced socially and professionally in Washington. In his diary, Drury recalled it was difficult to, quote, put into exact words the combination of feelings he arouses. The man's integrity and his idealism and his sainted otherworldliness are never in question. It's just the problem of translating them into everyday language and making them jibe with his shy, embarrassed, uncomfortable good fellowship that is so difficult. And in prophetic nature, and in prophetic nature, and in prophetic nature, Drury's opinion on Wallace's political aspirations would prove true. He said, no matter what he does, it is always going to seem faintly ridiculous. And no matter how he acts, it is always going to seem faintly pathetic, at least to the cold-eyed judgments of the hill. Washington wasn't ready for a mind like Henry A. Wallace. Neither was Roosevelt, though. Roosevelt went from having the schoolyard bully by his side to having the kid the schoolyard bully beat up every day. Wallace was a constant reminder of that dynamic, and with every flubbed line in a speech and every snicker from his peers, Wallace's ideas and vision were, well, it's a little disappointing that we didn't get to see it all play out, but Roosevelt ultimately felt like he erred in judgment on his running mate. While Wallace was very competent and good at his job, Wallace's vision, while initially in line with Roosevelt's, was far more progressive than even the president was comfortable with. Combined with Wallace's own failure to play politics, a game he just didn't seem to have the stomach for, well, that spelled doom. In four years, Wallace just couldn't, well, pardon the pun, garner enough support among Washington Democrats. FDR was in failing health and just 
kind of by that point tired of all the Washington backbiting. Faced with the party going full-on progressive and reigning back to center, well, FDR just chose to do very little to fight the 44 convention's ousting of Wallace from the ticket in favor of Missouri racist Harry S. Truman. Roosevelt was too ill to travel or really do much of anything at that point, reportedly, and he wasn't even at the convention. Wallace left with few allies, and a progressive movement that had been used and abused by the Democrats was out. The platform wasn't needed anymore. And it's not to say that progressive policies ended with Henry A. Wallace. They kept going. We had a conservative with Truman. But it was just that it was more reined in. By that point, America was benefiting from the progressive policy and couldn't care less how they got it. They just wanted to keep going on. In 1944, America is in full-on World War II mode, and the powers that be had a new toy to show off. The American government, Republicans and conservative Democrats, were eager to show the world what we were capable of. The only problem? The war ended before we could get it ready. Japan was on the brink of surrender. This is an historical fact. Indisputable. And I mean, they were like about to issue the surrender. It was inevitable. Truman dropped two nuclear warheads on two cities in Japan, poisoning the land, the water, the people for a hundred years. Burning people alive. Civilians. Children. While some may look at Wallace's term as vice president a disappointment, it's really hard to reconcile that claim, considering that while Garner assumed more duties than any VP before him, it was Henry A. Wallace's turn as wartime vice president, taking on more and more responsibilities, that saw an evolution in the role of vice president in our government that is still seen today. Wallace managed to impress, but impressing someone and making an impression, well, that's the difference between a politician and a president. Wallace was certainly impressive. It's just the impression you're left with was as confusing as Alan Drury's description. The progressive movement credits FDR for the New Deal, which proved that progressive policy and, yes, democratic socialism works. Roosevelt wasn't a far-left progressive. In fact, if you look at his record, Roosevelt was a moderate by most of today's standards. He pushed the New Deal, which was mostly socialist in nature, and won four elections on those socialist policies by landslide. The American people voted resoundingly and repeatedly for those socialist policies in the New Deal. No president, no platform in the history of America has ever been elected more times or received more votes than the Democratic Socialist Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Can you imagine how scary that might be for some people in Washington? Those socialist policies in the New Deal, <laughs> we all benefit from them today. However, the moderate branch of the Democratic Party was weak and split. Far-extreme conservative Democrats sought to urge the country back to center-right, while progressives and liberals realized that by compromising the middle, you end up on the opposite side. With this conservative extremism running rampant with the liberals during this time period, Roosevelt realized that due to the strength of the Republican Party, despite their many failures of the early 20th century, and the resurgence of the Democratic Party, bold moves must be made in order to keep the ship afloat. And not only that, to keep the ship where it needs to be. There's a balance in Washington. And right now, the balance was shifting, not with the people, but with the politicians to the right. Roosevelt trying hard to steer it back in line with New Deal policies. Ultimately, Roosevelt's death and Truman's appointment as president, then re-election in 1948, would take the Democratic Party in a new direction for the back half of the 20th century. 
Not that anyone tried to stop it. Wallace, the humanist, would run against and lose to Truman on the Progressive Party ticket in 1948, and that would effectively be the end for Wallace in Washington. For America, Wallace almost certainly wouldn't have bombed Japan. That America cheered on as we ended the war with little regard for the cost on our soul it surely weighed heavily on the former vice president. And it should weigh heavily on all of our souls. It didn't need to happen. Though unsuccessful, Wallace sought to defeat Truman in the anti-progressive establishment of both Republican and Democratic parties. It's an odd journey for progressives within the Democratic Party, but remember that the terms are fluid. Republicans have run as progressives, liberal, conservative, moderate, progressive. It's... In just about 125 years of American history, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, man, they've really done a number on the American people, trading positions and ideals while using we the people as political pawns in their game of influence and power brokering. The Democrats' failures through our nation's history are rivaled only by the successes of the Republican Party. And by that, <laughs> I mean that loosely. When left unchecked, conservative policies have left a provable track record at times of being disastrously catastrophic for the American economy. In those instances, in those instances, it's taken liberal, if not progressive, policies to right the ship. Democrats have saved this country as many times as Republicans have risked losing it. Uh, but the thing is, the pendulum swings. No party is completely evil. Both share culpability in slavery. Both share responsibility for the way this country treats her people and others. We identify by many different labels and words. But with a little storytelling mixed in with your history flakes, maybe you can see the complexity of America's parties. Defining ourselves, identifying as a conservative or a liberal, Democrat, Republican, American even. It lets others know which side of an issue you may be on, but based on what we're finding out now, what does it really say about us as individuals? I mean, you are the company you keep, after all. When you think about an historical purity test, whether or not something reaches the standard by which you deem worthy of your consideration, or in this case, maybe respect, then what passes the purity test now? How low does the bar get set? What are the standards? When future generations sit down to record a podcast, what will they think and say about us right now? Watergate was about spying on people. That was bad. But we moved on. And apparently that bar that Republicans limboed under, it wasn't raised back up high enough. Because the Bush administration, it was about spying on people. We've sold ourselves up the river on data and information. There's nothing we can do about it because our representation is working for the other guys. I mean, that's just one example. We lowered the bar. We're always lowering the bar. Our standards. The purity test. Compromise. And friends, it does not matter what side you're on. This isn't foil hat conspiracy. Follow the money. Again, the biggest contributors, you know, they play both sides. Follow the money. You voted for a candidate, or you support one, so follow the money. Because that's what it all comes down to now. Money, influence, power, favors. Look at the White House. No one deserved clemency more than Rod Blagojevich? Was it in his apprentice contract that he gets a get-out-of-jail-free card? Boy, wouldn't that be nice. And acknowledging Gone with the Wind as a classic film study in comparison to more modern films is one thing. But when it's clear one fondly longs for the days of Gone with the Wind, we have some serious issues. It isn't biased to point out facts. It's biased to misrepresent facts. And so I say, research. Find the answers to your questions. Check the source. Minor history. 
uh, the U.S. Senate website, other sites with reliable, credible sources, all over the World Wide Web, and then some. I still use actual libraries. And the fact is that republicanism <laughs> only works for the very, very top of Republicans. The richest and most powerful. Everybody else just gets to rub their scratchies and hope they get a winner, winner, chicken dinner. Seriously. Our economy, our paychecks, because of conservative policies and weak Democratic leadership through history, are affected by a system you didn't agree to, with rules set to keep you from ever being able to make or change the rules. We're hamsters on a wheel here. The liberals, specifically progressives, have pushed forth some of the most dynamic, changing, and effective legislation in our nation's history. For the American people, for the worker. Conservatives, both Republicans and Democrats, they've had their fair share of wins over time, but the impact of conservative policy on America's working-class economy long-term proves to spell doom. Still, through Watergate, through Reagan, through Bush, through this, and the Democratic Party still can't get it together. The Republican Party has over and over again proved to be corrupt and filled with offenses, moral, ethical, legal. Yet strategically, most of the time, they hammer down. The Democrats, when they've won, they haven't been able to hold on to whatever it is. Whatever that it is. It's because the party is largely split between two sides. Now, as it always has been. Today, it's the younger, more progressive side and the middle to older, more moderate side. What do these words even mean? One candidate called on a debate stage to nominate, quote, an actual Democrat. So I want to explain what that means. Stepping back from labels, it's hard to consider Harry S. Truman a liberal. You could barely call the man a Democrat by the standards of this time. And it's hard not to look back on Lyndon Johnson's presidency as tarnished by his brash my way or the highway rule of order and his responsibility for all the lives lost in Vietnam. Hell, while we're at it, I mean, we've examined America's Democratic presidents. The Democratic Party has always struggled to not only ascend to the high power, but when they get it, they fumble the ball. The progressive movement and its diverse support constantly at battle with the conservatives within their own party. Remember, balance is what makes American politics function correctly. It's written into the Constitution. But Democrats have a history of, labels aside, shifting the power balance in America's political spectrum to the right. Ideals in a two-party system end up very black and white. For many immigrants or children of immigrants, America's stance on abortion might be morally abhorrent. But by standing up for that value, they must compromise their own safety and well-being and the threat of risking one's life to flee one oppressive government, only to be hunted and reviled, fearful under the racist thumb of another oppressive government that doesn't want them here. It's foolish to assume any one of us is that singular and one-dimensional as voters, as people. What's happened is that we're convinced that the extremes bookend. But extremes don't bookend in politics, not American politics. On bookending extremes, you're on that 10 scale we talked about, and the extreme is 10 and 0, respectively. Except that, at times, when the conservatives, especially the Republican Party, feels emboldened like they do now, their arrogance swells and oozes like a cold sore, letting everyone know what you've done. When we end up where 10 is no longer the most extreme, then what becomes center? I fear that, as Americans, we lose sight of that. We've jumped the shark, Fonzie. Now we're at 12. 12 is the new 10. 
There are things going on today that we did not believe would be possible in the public spectrum. The line's been pushed. The bar has been lowered. And it's hard to disagree with some of what we wake up to and are surrounded by daily. I mean, come on, man. Not everything needs Twitter commentary. Jesus. What we perceive as zero, being the bookend extreme, having been a constant message for decades, it just makes the argument difficult that zero is moving further out left. We're not at negative one, negative two. Zero's still at zero. Zero hasn't changed for 40 years or more. And if 12 is the new 10, then isn't the new center, isn't it at six now? Ideologically, we've all had to take a small step, not closer to center, but closer to conservative, closer to right. What I'm about to say will shock some, and I hope you'll let me explain. I would argue that for liberals, Democrats, whatever you want to label the left, the extreme is not progressivism. The extreme part of the party is and has been, from the beginning, the moderates. And let's not fall prey to new branding, folks. Moderate is what they started calling themselves. These are conservative Democrats, just like Woodrow Wilson, Harry S. Truman, just like Andrew Johnson, just like Franklin Pierce, just like many. And when we consider that the progressives in this country, whether fighting for a new constitution, a country that works for the people, or to free slaves, a new economy that works for the people, or for civil rights, a society that works for the people, or a government that works for the people. Progressives have had a strong influence standing up to blockades of conservative obstinance within their own party, as well as across the aisle. The extreme is to the center. The fact is, through good old-fashioned democratic compromise, we've seen throughout history, we're left with a democratic party that has become far removed from the principles which bred it. Instead, as most conservatives have taken advantage of the liberals, which literally means free to give, the line moves slowly, inch by inch, further toward 12. How far will it go? And where will our center be then? And when we discuss radical ideals, what's more radical for a liberal? The notion that guaranteeing health care is a right with provisions in place to stop the capitalism run amuck in the industry of life and well-being? Or that medicine and healthcare are fair game, for sale to the highest bidder. Worrying about any president or administration changing America's economic system from capitalism is ridiculous. It can't happen. Capitalism will never be fully abandoned. Capitalism has its advantages. That's undeniable. Countless advancements in every imaginable field, thanks to capitalism. However, the landscape of America and the world has changed. Everything about it has changed, a lot. And capitalism only works if we, as a society, can agree that some things are not for sale. We're seeing capitalism fail before us because everything is for sale, even the American people. And what's being proposed by the Progressive Party is what we've seen in the past, a new way of looking at the way we do certain things. And it comes down to money, power, influence, and those things only serve to breed corruption. I mean, honestly, how can we really stand behind a philosophy whose primary driving force is one of the seven deadly sins? Capitalism is fueled by greed. And only greed. Let's say that a big business 
decides they want to build a factory in a certain place over some other place. And if we can accept that there are certain tax breaks and incentives that are negotiated for that sort of opportunity in an area, and if we can also accept the immoral amount of money that is spent trying to ensure this factory comes to your town so your people have jobs and your town will grow, but the workers make $8 an hour, and many are held under the full-time threshold for benefits purposes. And what happens is the factory company says, well, you know what? Come to think of it, we're looking at buying land and building. We may do it here, but we may also do it over there and heck over yonder. And so because you want that industry and opportunity in your area, you bid. You give and you give and you give and you give and as if your town's working class deserves $8 an hour more than the other towns. But the other town just keeps giving and giving and giving incentives, and you have to match, but it still isn't good enough. The factory company threatens to just abandon it altogether and build in a whole different state because thanks to deregulation, they own the transport company so they can absorb those costs and, you know, not pass the savings on to you. It isn't negotiation. It's bribery. It's industry and jobs being held for ransom by a broken and corrupt free market. Why do we let big business dictate the rules of their stay? We turned America over to big business in the early 20th century, and that's why capitalism is struggling. Because we put this economic juggernaut fueled solely by greed with no track, no guardrails. Man, it's just a matter of time before there's a collision. The capitalism that fueled the restoration following the Civil War, which also crashed the stock market in 1907, and the capitalism dashed with a touch of progressive and, yes, socialism-inspired policy of Wilson, that bounced us back after a war, and the blind Coolidge capitalism, combined with the financial autonomy of the American government having been surrendered to the big banking industry and allowing big business to infiltrate our government, capitalism sure gets a good rap. Everyone is so defensive of capitalism, which is odd, especially since capitalism failed. The economy crashed. America had to sell itself to the private banking industry to stay afloat. Remember? Capitalism bounced us back, but it was temporary, and capitalism failed again, each time nearly taking the nation with it. Capitalism only really started working when socialism was mixed with it during the Roosevelt administration. After that, the American dream was born, and our economy, population, and expectations exploded like never before. Nothing beats a well-regulated free market which is all anyone is asking for, really. A fair market over a free market. Americans, at key intervals, have been asked to decide her values. To adopt a constitution or not. Should new states be admitted as slave states or free states? Should we go to war? Our earliest values were of liberty, independence, and freedom. However, America isn't a nation in her infancy any longer. And those principles are in no way being threatened by anyone except maybe hackers, which is the new war front we need to be focused on, by the way. Which is what I'm saying. We fought hard and bloody battles on the ground, sea and air, but the next threat is informational. And just like the rest of the world growing and advancing, America is no longer the new kid in town. America is a nation who sprouted pubes and the voice is cracking. We're full-on hormonal adolescent, wanting to fight anybody and we don't know why we're so mad. To the Jeffersonian era, to the Jacksonian era, into the 20th century and beyond, America is going to continue to grow and mature. And we need to let her. But we also have to be the parents. We don't abide by the same rules we did when we were toddlers, infants, teens. 
and America must adapt. Sometimes, when you're grumpy, maybe you have to go to bed early. We are at a fairness crossroads with the American working class. We've seen it before in history, similar trends. And it's because the right keeps pushing their limits, and the left keeps trying to do damage control. As the right extreme stretches the boundaries of acceptability, the left, the true left, are the ones defending the platform, defending true zero. Conservatism and the party pushes us all further and further to the right, and it tells us it's okay because we need someone who's appealing. To whom? When standing at a chasm of ideology, as the two sides are now, the message of centrism being equated with unity is frightening in and of itself. Look, by centering the party, you're essentially muting one of its most successful and passionate branches. Meanwhile, Democrats and liberals who cede to center are really only seeking to be more conservative. That seems pretty extreme to liberal and progressive values. An argument could be made that the economy is strong right now, but economists warn that those reports aren't all factual. Regardless, just as we saw in the stock market crash and the Coolidge economy, that just because things seem to be going well doesn't mean they will end well. The path forward now, just as Roosevelt saw during the Great Depression, is that we've got to be open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. And moreover, it's the responsibility of an advanced civilization to examine the methods, philosophies, strategies, even the culture of failures as much as successes. Listen, most of our great ideas were bred out of failure. And the fact is, FDR and the progressive liberals, just like throughout history, stood up and said, these principles failed because they weren't Americans and they didn't have our values. With American values and the power of the people and the Constitution, this will work. We should provide public power, programs and services that build and create jobs, incentive to start businesses, and the government's role should be to ensure these opportunities so that the society can focus on being productive and advancing us all. He didn't say that, I paraphrased. Conservatives would have had us fending for ourselves in the workforce, but that meant long hours and inhumane working conditions, and meant child labor in an era where America's workforce went largely unprotected. The issue of how much power the federal government should have has been at the crux of our nation's divisions, every single one. And it's true today. In a conservative versus progressive comparison, the word liberal just chucked to the wind. Progressives seek new ways of fixing obviously very broken and unfair systems, laws, and institutions. Now, clearly there is resistance, traditionalists. Conservatives who prefer gradual change so they can get used to it over long periods of time. Almost like playing a board game, and two players are so immersed in strategizing against one another that they're slowing down the game for everybody else. You know, like they're in their own little game, like an inside joke. Progressives are the voice stepping in and saying, just go, roll already, do something. Progress is in no way a bad thing. In fact, without progress, duh, fire would still be bad. I'm not saying progress is always going to work, but, but prudent progress, in check, breeds new innovations. And when we as a society seek to halt or stamp out progress, we have to ask exactly why. I'm hard on Truman for many reasons. And in fairness, his presidency and legacy wasn't all needlessly slaughtering hundreds of thousands of human beings in civilian-filled cities, poisoning hundreds of miles for at least 100 years. He expanded FDR's progressive policies through his 21-point program, which sought to grow Social Security and lots of workers' rights, fair housing legislation, and work toward ending poverty. The, the whole point is, it's okay to be critical. But there are a lot of different perspectives through which we have to filter our opinion. 
Like when it comes to Truman, you could look at his presidency as the last of an era for democratic politics and American political culture. When Kennedy rose, it was the dawning of a new era for the Democrats, and America, flush in the era of pop culture entertainment, was obsessed with Hollywood. Glitz and glamour fascinated Americans, and as media options increased, information flow increased. But not just information like news. Uh, we were getting information on products, messages, trends, styles, ideas. Can you imagine, just for a second, America's social and cultural landscape without television? Oh, Kennedy looked good on TV. Well, most people thought. I never saw it. Now, John John? <laughs> mm -mm -mm. Another podcast. The TV generation was an evolution in American politics. Newspapers informed. Movies drove America's imagination. But television, oh, television, put a full sensory information, entertainment, and storytelling experience right in America's living room. Television, especially after the Kennedy-Nixon debate, would go on to decide more presidents than the Electoral College. In the era since television, our elections have taken on a different personality. Our candidates bigger and, and more exposed. We have access to more information than ever before. Yet we still want it handed to us on a platter. When we look at how the nation's political landscape has shifted almost tectonically to form these individual segments of American ideology, there are two different parties in America. But I'm telling you, there are more. There are closer to five ideologies. It's a dangerous thing to be so closed-minded and to lack nuance that we lack the ability to speak freely about controversial topics because there's a way for discourse to be handled. And then there's a way to be a hurtful schmuck like Rush Limbaugh, for example. And for the Democrats to be stuck in this world where we lack nuance, where everything is black and white, you lose sight of the beauty of a colorful array of possibilities. We see it in the debate stages where they speak of uniting a party under someone other than a my way or the highway candidate. This is conservative liberalism at its most toxic. When another candidate pleads for a reason that a president needs to be someone who can get things done and reach across the aisles, it's laughable. The same party who shut down Obama, the same party that lockstep voted against impeachment, the same party who has, as you've seen, dominated American policy for much of the last 200 years with not a lot of compromise, is one with which we, progressives or liberals, would have any luck sitting down and negotiating with. The last thing we need is a candidate who will compromise more when they get things done. Because as we've seen, the right is at a 12. And they don't compromise. The more we compromise, the more extremist conservative Democrats will drag us to republicanism. Today, like in 1980, just like in 1944, and just like in many times throughout history, America's standing at a precipice of defining her personality on the world stage. Except this time, we no longer have the excuse. This time, we should have known better. This time, the nation may drive farther to the right than it is now, a feat that would be aided by electing conservative, excuse me, moderate Democrats. Listen carefully to what they're saying, because they've been saying it all along. In order to appeal to moderate Republicans, you have to elect a moderate Democrat. In order to appeal to conservatives, you have to elect a conservative. We're not trying to appeal. We're fighting for a platform. And compromise goes both ways. But it's not right now. We can't elect a candidate who says you're either with us or against us. And why wouldn't the candidate be against you and the party? The party is against him. 
how about we nominate an actual Democrat? Historically speaking, examine your candidate under that purity test. And this, boys and girls, is the problem with the Democratic Party. Within it, you have the conservatives and the progressives, one side grasping desperately as the party's ideals are sold out over history for the sake of political relevance, and the other side trying to be more Republican. Between now and the Democratic Convention, read up a little on the 1980 Convention, with the party again divided down the middle and the Republicans more emboldened than ever. I'm afraid history may be unfolding before our very eyes. Liberals, Democrats, conservative, moderates, progressives. It's a split that has proven disastrous repeatedly in the party's history. Let's hope they get it right this time. That's it. Boy, what a ride. Uh, like, share, and subscribe. More episodes about stuff other than politics coming soon.